Oi, oi, oi. Greetings and welcome to the Stacks from Swinging London. This is Jay. And I'd tell you who I am, but first I'd have to fill out an SH4 and A form. Oh, yeah. You, you really got to get those forms in. Uh, <laughs> you must do the paperwork. Oh, paperwork is a really big deal in this one. We're talking about 1965's The Ipcress File, one of the early films by director Sidney J. Fury, uh, when he was kind of hip and swinging and cool before he kind of ended his career in sort of dumpster fire movies like Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen the Superman besides the Kevin Spacey one. Oh, that's wild. We should do those sometime. I, I, I still only have... The only one, for some reason, that I have on blue is Supergirl. I don't have any of the others on Blu-ray. I have all the... Um, I have a big... I have, like, a great old... Uh, th there was a box set that came in, like, a big steel box, but on DVD, and I've never upgraded oh. it. One of these days. Because I love those movies. Days. They're they're kind of great. Uh, the fourth one is absolute dog shit. I have... <laughs> I, I have, like, a... Uh, it's only me that loves number three, but I love number three so much. That's the one with Richard Pryor. It's kind of more a Richard Pryor movie than a Superman movie. Is that the one where the guys in office space steal the idea? Correct. Yes, it is completely uh, okay. Richard Pryor's plot from that movie. And he was kind of originally <laughs> supposed to be Brainiac. Anyway, we're way off the topic already uh also one of the very f th this one ipcress file one of the earliest michael Caine films like this is his second significant role arguably oh wow because he's really young I, it, he had been in zulu prior to this which was like uh, a pretty big epic but that's like the year before this is his first time just in a lead role oh interesting I'm trying to think of uh, I'm trying to think of Michael Caine movies that I've seen, but I've seen so many that I literally can't just pinpoint one. He's uh, very Batman. prolific. Batman, yeah, he's he's great as Alfred in the Nolan Batmans. Uh, oh, uh, the the one Austin Powers movie where I he's the dad. Understand? Yeah. He basically plays this guy. Kinda, yeah. Come to think of it, he's basically playing Harry Palmer in that. Uh, he's in, I mean, he's in so much stuff. I watched him in Jaws the Revenge, where he <laughs> famously has said about it, oh, I've never seen it, but I have seen the house, it, the the add-on garage that it paid for, and it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You know, fair enough. It, it speaks to how Michael Caine is, and he kind of is Harry Palmer. Like, Harry Palmer feels very Michael Caine-y. <laughs> you know, I, I can see it. And th that's sort of the style of this movie. This is a couple years after the Bond series started, and it's sort of an anti-Bond movie. And I'd put realism in quotes, but it's much more realistic than Bond, especially at this point in time. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say how realistic it is, but I'm sure Bond uh, should have filed a lot of paperwork that he didn't. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of one of the main things. It's very office bound. It's internal office strife instead of being <laughs> globe trotting adventures. He never leaves London. No. <laughs> Although he thinks he well, does for a while. Wait, he doesn't? No, no that, because when he gets trip. out, he's just over there. Yeah, he's just in a warehouse. They said it was Albania, but, you know, <laughs> right. that, was, 
<laughs> that was all part of the scam. But yeah, it's it's almost like uh, what happens to him. It, it feels quite a bit like what happened with the MK Ultra program in the CIA, where it's just, well, we want to test out this mind wipe stuff, but I mean, we can't just pull some civilian off the street. We'll just use one of our guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are basically doing an MK Ultra. Oh, very much by the end. Like that is an MK Ultra experiment. They are doing a mind wipe box, which is <laughs> crazy, but. Uh, most of it is very down to earth and it's sort of stylishly drab. Like you have a lot of browns and grays and it looks drab. It's pre swinging London. It's like, like just before, you know, the, the mythical swinging London of the late sixties. I, the descriptor I keep coming back mm. to it, for, at least for the first half before we realize what the super villains up to is, um, aggressively, hilariously boring. Yeah, it's just like you, you got to fill out these forms. Everyone is a complete stuffed shirt except for Michael Caine. Well, and, the, and his girlfriend later. Yeah, yeah, but he still has to do all the stuffed shirt stuff or he'll lose yeah. his job and his paycheck. Although he's sort of anti-authoritarian and he's willing to not fill out forms and sort of do things through back alley ways. And that's kind of what makes him better at his job than the rest of the crew. But it's also what makes him just insufferable <laughs> yeah. to the to the higher ups. Although it is what causes him to win. Yeah, but it it is also what causes him to have to undergo all the mind wipe stuff too. So you know, it's yeah. sort of a double edged sword. One of the things that I really love about this movie is the way it's shot, and this is just Sidney J. Fury in. His early career, obviously, very stylish filmmaker. Uh, all of the shot composition, it's like it, it's a combination of things. It's got sort of the metaphorical thing of everything we're watching is partially obscured. Uh, we as the audience never are completely sure what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. There's always there's always something in the foreground or yeah. oftentimes there will be a lamp covering up a character's face. Or it's shot from over the shoulder, or it's shot from, like, behind a phone box, or, yeah, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Always, like, we're covertly watching the film, or the, 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 the film is being covertly taken, which is cool. It, it does feel a lot like we're watching through a, through a series of hidden spy cameras. Yeah, and I take that. Uh, one of the the interesting thing, one of the more interesting elements of the movie, just how every shot is that it, it's very dynamic. You get all these really crazy uh, shots from like below things or you know through tables. It's cool. Mm -hmm. And and it really is every single shot. As soon as you pointed it yeah. out, I started watching. I'm like, they yeah. don't do a normal shot in this. No, they're they're not they're not there for that. It's all style. Which is cool, because it, it's like I say, it's stylishly drab. Like you say, everything they're doing seems kind of boring, but it's super dynamic how it's always shot. You know, people having conversations in offices, but it, it seems like you're peeking into something that you shouldn't be seeing. Mm -hmm. And without that unique camera thing, I think I think it would be very boring to watch. <clears throat> it could be, yeah. It, well, it could be, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. There, This has been remade as a TV series just in the past year oh. in Britain, on, on in the BBC. I My understanding is it uses the Harry Palmer name, and it's called the Ipcrest File, and it kind of starts the same way. But it sounds like it's got globetrotting adventure, and like they witness a nu neutron bomb explosion. So it's 
considerably more elevated and kind of a little bit more like an actual Bond movie. See, oh man, if you witness a neutron bomb explosion, can you imagine the forms you'd have to fill out? <laughs> it would be crazy. Uh, this one of the things this own this series itself became ridiculously over the top and Bond esque, even just in three movies. The third one is absurd. Oh, really? Yeah, it doesn't take long. Okay, it's, okay. The second one, Funeral in Berlin, he goes to Berlin. It's it's actually some globetrotting, but, you know, still relatively down to earth. You can third, still take a train there. Yeah, third one, Billion Dollar Brain, complete nonsense. Mm. You got, mm. like, tank battles in the Arctic Circle while the Beatles <laughs> play. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, that, that's the one thing I wanted to mention about this one, too. The cool spy soundtrack also mm. enhances a lot of what's going on. Yeah, I really dig the score. Very atmospheric. It's got a lot of just, it's very jazzy. It's got that swing in London feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a John Barry score. He's the same guy who did the Bond scores. Oh, okay. It, it did feel Bond-ish, but not not Bond. Right. It's got a very different flavor to it than Bond, but it has that sort of density. Uh, John Barry has sort of a distinct sound to his work. Uh, This actually has a lot of uh, overlaps with the Bond series. It's also the same set designer, Ken Adam, who's just rad. Like that guy did all the huge villainous Bond lairs. He's the guy who made the fucking volcano fortress in You Only Live Twice. That's like the greatest fucking villain lair ever. Nice, nice. One thing I just want to point out at the start, not really related to the movie, but I love the logo for the rank organization. I don't think we've watched a rank organization film on the podcast before, but, you know, the the big gong. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Guy ringing the gong says rank organization on it. That's one of my all time favorite British film logos. So it starts with two men in a taxi. We got Dr. Radcliffe who's reading his new scientist magazine. Mm-hmm. And there's his guard who's really nervous and looking about. So they, they get to a train and the nervous guy says like, okay, have a good holiday. Henderson will meet you. And he like goes back to the car, realizes Radcliffe left his camera and he goes back to the train and, you know, it's a guy in the seat with the same magazine in front of his face and he lowers and it's just some other dude <laughs> scary looking dude of course yeah he's like oh where's ratcliffe and the train whistle blows we see the train leave and just uh, the guard's body is on top of some luggage hmm. and i it, like right from the start the information is sort of withheld from us we don't really know how he died or what exactly happened there or how this switch happened or any of it is just no, well, there's no, I guess that guy's dead. Uh, we don't really know who these people are or what they were doing. I didn't even realize he was a professor at first. I thought he was <laughs> one of the spies, actually. I mean, it kind of stands to reason that he would be related to them. But mm. yeah, he's just some professor. I, I kind of just love the whole general vibe of the movie. Very low light. We have all, of, like, like I said, with the shots sort of obscured and... Uh, Everything's over shoulders, through windows, through screens. It's almost like an anti-anxiety film where it's all of this sort of shady stuff happening. But the way it's shot, 
you yourself as the audience are covert. You, you kind of feel comforted by your distance from it. Yeah, um, it's actually something that they mentioned in the trailer. It's like, you will be solving the mystery. And I didn't really get what they meant by that until I watched the movie. Right. You're kind of just living in the scenery and it's it's very chill. And I would say that the John Barry score is a big part of that as well. Just it's very low key. It's got that the dense tonality to it. Uh, but it's jazzy. It's cool. Like it is a a cool tone to it. Mm-hmm. One of the things about this movie is it feels like at least in the first half before he gets abducted, it feels like. Like you said about withholding information, they even when they are explaining what's going on, they're using code words and everything. So right. us, the viewer, still has to try to piece together what the hell they're talking about, even <laughs> yeah. though they, the characters, know what they're talking about. They're not going to explain it anymore because they did it already. Yeah, they did it's, it. It's it, you know they they have a code for that. <laughs> so it's like, LX88. Oh, okay. right. We know what that is. Sure. Right. Uh, it, it, the, just the, the whole anti-anxiety mood of it, it reminded me of, uh, Sam Roberts band, you know, Canadian classic, right? I'm vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're really important kind of top flight Canadian band of the mm-hmm. early aughts and sort of less well known now, but they have this album, low fantasy that I really love. It's sort of one of their later ones. And I've listened to their interviews about it and they talk about how, it's rock music for hungover people because they wrote it when they were on tour and they were always drinking. They're always hungover when they were writing the song. So it's got just sort of a softness around all of the tones, despite being, you know, mainstream rock. This has that feel to me. It's uh, a spy movie. Our, our main character is put in some very anxiety inducing situations where, you know, he's potentially going to lose his own personality and name yeah but you you kind of just feel really chilled out while you're watching it it's got a whole vibe Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean part of the chill effect is we also watch him getting groceries and making coffee and cooking dinner a lot yeah he has a lot of conversations most of the time he's talking about women because that's really his main interest he just does this work because it's his job. It's yeah. not a whole Bond thing. Like, Bond is a womanizer. This guy's not a womanizer. He's just like, yeah, I really like girls and I will cook for them. You know, I'm a pretty uh, decent dude. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's also the anti-Bond in that he's into women and he's certainly leering or looking at women a lot, but he's certainly not a womanizer. Mm-hmm. So he is introduced. Our, our Palmer, Harry Palmer, he's woken by an alarm. And... I, I love the initial sort of visual demonstration of how he cannot see without his glasses. Oh, yeah. They do the thing where the whole the whole camera is blurry until he puts them on. Yeah, we get his POV shot and then, you know, the glasses come up. It's like, oh, OK. So it, it's a good establishing of that his glasses are actually necessary, although it doesn't really come up much in the movie. There's like one other POV thing. Yeah, but it's no, it it never really gets used against him or anything. Right. I, maybe it does in the sequels. I can't remember. I have seen them, but not in a few years. So he does like POV scan of his room and we see an alcohol bottle with two glasses and oh, there's yeah. clothes on a chair. So presumably he got it on with someone the other night, but they don't seem to be there anymore. Maybe that's just 
how it is. Maybe they just leave before. I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. But it, it's interesting. It, it establishes both that it's not a very stylish apartment, but, you know, it's it's tidy. It's cozy. But it's certainly much uh, much more realistic than the environment of a James Bond apartment. Because we see James Bond's apartments in all of these movies, and they're huge, lavish, <laughs> ridiculous spaces. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he lives in a place that, like, I could almost afford. Yeah, he's working class. He has a flat. <laughs> so he opens up the curtains. He makes some coffee. Uh, very elaborately makes some coffee. I love the logo of the movie, by the way, which appears while he's just grinding coffee in the morning, which is a great way to start the movie uh, for its whole vibe. <laughs> I get your coffee first. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, th- this is a uh, morning and coffee kind of movie. It It isn't, a, you know, Friday night blockbuster style. Yeah. yeah. But I love the logo of the movie. It's uh, very stylish. It's just, you know, it, it's like a desk blotter kind of thing, but it's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I would say watching him making coffee over the opening credits, it kind of establishes the fussy precision with which he approaches kind of everything in his life. Mm-hmm. I love that they have like the, the cool spy theme playing over him making the coffee. So good. <laughs> this is also the point in my notes where I start noting the John Barry score as well, because you know, him doing the coffee and then you got that really cool score. Coming. It's like, Ooh, nice. As, as he painstakingly makes this special coffee with like, a French press that, that yep. I thought was a new thing. Right. I, it's probably French press was uh, getting a French press was not as easy back then. Mm. Only the serious coffee drinkers, I guess. I guess so. So he reads the paper and circles some horses, like some, some numbers of horses. So I guess he bets on races. It doesn't really come up again, but it's interesting. Just again, uh, down-to-earth kind of dude. He's not living a James Bond kind of lifestyle. Yeah, what does James Bond get up to when he's not doing spy shit? It doesn't seem like he has a lot of time. I I just watched From Russia with Love, which we'll talk about a little bit in uh, the the third part, but uh, From Russia with Love is usually considered the most down-to-earth Bond movie. Oh, because, you know, it's fairly straightforward. It's the first one with Q. His gadget is just a suitcase with some stuff that you can pull out of it that's hidden, hidden compartments. <laughs> it's very simple. Okay. But it's still a plot where James Bond is famous enough that a Russian spy is wanting to defect to the UK because she's fallen in love with his portrait. <laughs> <clears throat> and Spectre, their whole plot is getting revenge for the death of Dr. No on Bond by filming an unauthorized sex tape of him to discredit him and then murder him. I don't think that's going to have the intended effect. No, it's weird. I mean, it's it's a totally off-the-rails kind of <laughs> concept, but it's so much more down-to-earth than every other James Bond movie because, you know, just that they'd be concerned about him <laughs> <laughs> having a sex tape versus... Moonraker, where they broadcast to the Queen him live having sex in space. (laughs) (laughs) It's like elevated. (laughs) 
one thing that I thought was weird, he retrieves his gun from under his pillow or from somewhere in the bed anyways. Yeah, so he's still into the spy life enough that he sleeps with a gun under his pillow. Guess so. So he walks to work to his (laughs) surveillance port. (laughs) Yeah. And just for fun, he, like, kicks open the door. He's 20 minutes late. It's really establishing, like, eh, even though we see him being very fussy and precise, it's not like he cares that much about work. <laughs> no, this is this isn't a lifestyle to him. This is a job, and he, yeah. he, he messes around as much as he can get away with. Like, he's very good at his job, but he is also not interested in authority in any way. Yeah. So uh, later on, we see, like, he he relieves the guy, and then he's sitting there doing a recording about all of the tedious bullshit. Like it's it's like a, lun- a grocery list that the uh, people bought across the road. <laughs> it's literally that. It's suspect yeah. brought, bought ham, cheese. More tea. It's like, well, that's kind of suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and his relief comes really early because Ross wants you. Oh, uh, and uh, it's like, hmm, okay. And they have a whole conversation, and then just as he's going, it's like, oh, by the way, you've got some wiping to do. That tape's still running. He didn't pause it or anything. He just <laughs> let it run for the whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> just to mess with them. Of course. So again, he takes a taxi. Also can't really envision Bond taking a taxi around <laughs> London. Unless it's a special transforming taxi with guns for headlights. Like, he has his own car in London. In you know, I, I, I see him take taxis in other places, but even there, he's usually being chauffeured by someone. Anyway, mm-hmm. he, uh, our Palmer, he takes a taxi to the Ministry of Defense in the old Admiralty building. And Ross is just feeding pigeons. And just <laughs> both of our main... Uh, like uh, Ross and Dalby are, are sort of his two bosses in this, and they're both very stiff, very stern, and posh, like very upper class Brits. Oh yeah, like Dalby's like, I'm going to take you to a concert, and it's it's a military <laughs> marching band. He loves it. It's his favorite He's thing. So doing the hand it. thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they don't make music like this anymore. Oh, you're very lucky. Mozart's up next. Like oh, wonderful. Uh, I I also like how the the way Harry Palmer deflects the the poshness of the bosses. They'll say all of these very stiff things, and he'll apl- reply in agreement, but in just just the right sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love when he's like, "Well, he doesn't have my sense of humor." I miss <laughs> that. No, I'll miss that. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, uh, Ross, when he comes in, don't slouch into my office like a pregnant camel. <laughs> <laughs> and close the door. Like, yeah, that that is a very overstated, overly posh kind of introduction line for him. <laughs> Might as well just add a well I never. Yeah. <laughs> so he tells him he's being transferred to Major Dalby's unit. It's like, promotion? Uh, any more money? <laughs> like me, like okay, and he kind of muscles him into getting like an extra hundred pounds on his salary. <laughs> I'll try to get you seventeen hundred. Yeah. Oh, it's like, oh, and now I can get that new infrared grill because 
we've established he's really into cooking. Mm. He's like, oh, well, you won't have time for that. Ross works his vent very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Or no, not Ross, Dalby. He's Ross. The B-107, must that go with us? (laughs) 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 He's like, oh, yes, it's his long list of infractions. (laughs) (laughs) The the first of our many... uh, you know, letter and number combinations that are never really explained to us, but uh, we sort of understand through inference what they are. So the B-107, I guess that's his personnel file. Yeah, we don't we don't usually understand them until after, because right. when they're saying it, when a letter number combination could be a file, it could be a form they have to fill out. It could also be a procedure, a, yep. uh, a tactical assault, or a bench. It could be all sorts of things. Uh, you you just find you just, out when when it happens. <laughs> yeah, they just have to know what the numbers are. Right, which must be extremely tedious. Oh my god, I would hate it. I mean, this I is don't... also <laughs> it's also a thing police have to do with the various police codes. But usually, you'll have a little bit more information than that. that's for the radio. Yeah, like I don't even like filling out my taxes. They just have no. like section one. <laughs> it's a disaster. So he goes over to Dalby's building, which is kind of cool. It has a false front. Uh, it's it's supposed to be a domestic employment bureau on the outside. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's like a really old plaque and scuffed, notably. Like it's uh, circa 1875 or something. <laughs> so th- this is like a long running intelligence building, but it's obviously in disrepair. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Just it looks grimy. It's very dilapidated. Uh, when we get into Dalby's office, there's just like a cheap radiator sitting in this huge, ornate classical fireplace. <laughs> kind of a perfect metaphor for exactly where Dalby's office is at this point in time. And Dalby himself as kind of a shill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stupid mustache. <laughs> oh, it's a bad stash. It's awful. Oh, the stash is coming back in style, and I hate it. Oh, it's bad. So, uh, uh, Ross goes to meet Dalby. He's like, I've just read your T104. <laughs> oh. It's like, oh, I thought that might speed you over. <laughs> <laughs> what? What are these numbers? T104? <laughs> and he, he kind of dresses, uh, Ross is dressing Dolby down because uh, Radcliffe uh, got abducted and his guard was murdered. And it's like, how did this happen? It's like, well, we're not supposed to run security details. That's not our job. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we get the, this is all the background we ever really get. There's a brain drain issue. He's like, we've lost right. 126 operatives. And like, okay, okay. Most of them just found better opportunities. 107 of them actually were just, they, they got better job offers because we can't really afford to pay them very well. <laughs> no real room for mobility. Nobody wants to work these days. I need <laughs> to launch an inquiry into, into why nobody wants to work these days. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, we, we can't. It's like, okay, we, we admit we, we just couldn't afford to pay them very well. So that's why most of them left. But still, there's like those 19 other ones. <laughs> yeah, they left from uh, mysterious circumstances. Yeah, so there were three that actually defected. 
So straight up, there are three known defectors. And now with Radcliffe, it's now 17. It's like, well, we don't really know what happened to them. Hmm. Huh. So, that, you know, that's not an insignificant number. No, that's uh, that's an awful lot of uh, special scientists you don't want to lose track of. Right. Not a good thing. So Dalby's unit has been tasked to locate Radcliffe. And it's like, look, if you don't find him, we might just have to shut this unit down. <laughs> hey, you have a very good job for a passed over major, Dalby. I'm like, ooh, burn. <laughs> but so British Pom- burn. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's very <laughs> stiff and upper class. <laughs> so Palmer is replacing Taylor, the guard. The, the, the guard who ended up on yeah. the suitcase. <laughs> And Dolby, right from the beginning, he's trying to browbeat Palmer, but Palmer just kind of doesn't have any time for it. <laughs> well, it's not regular to read out somebody's B-104, but here we go. Insubordination. <laughs> yes. He's like, oh, I'll bite you, Palmer. I'll bite you hard. <laughs> <laughs> As he's, everything he says is hilarious because of his goofy mustache. It is. It's an absurd mustache. Like, it it makes him so comical. And his eyes, like, he's got those sort of buggy eyes, too. (laughs) Yeah. um, The eyes go with the mustache. Perfectly. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just the perfect caricature of ridiculousness. Mm Mm-hmm. Very well cast as sort of, it's the thing Monty Python would always refer to as the upper class twit. Uh-huh. Someone who's just, you know, he, he's failed upwards and now he's got this. He, you, we have learned specifically that he's been passed over for all these promotions. He's sort of in a dead end career part. And it's like he kind of got lucky with this plush job and he's also failing at it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's important to note that in his big, huge office, his desk is pushed back against the corner. Because so it's next to the window. <laughs> oh, yeah, but... He no, likes it, to dramatically have the window noise when people enter and then slowly close it. Oh, uh, he does like to do that. Yeah. You're right. He does it all the time. I <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah, it's his thing. So I, I, I like him doing sort of his walk and talk where he's trying to dress Palmer down the whole time and Palmer's just kind of having fun with it. <laughs> in the hall they run into the secretary and he does sort of the you know the, the hallway dance where you oh keep... yes the canadian <laughs> standoff yeah and at the end of it uh, palmer goes oh, thank you for a wonderful evening <laughs> <laughs> where this is where dalby does something like well i don't have ross's sense of humor it's like yes i will miss that sir because <laughs> <laughs> we've established that ross does not have a sense of humor either <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he he's told that the guy he's replacing was shot this morning so we do establish that this is still the same day uh-huh. and they go to his new office which is in a fake fireworks company just kind of hidden behind an office of a fireworks business that's pretty cool that's kind of rad i like that i think this is a thing i've seen in another british movie uh the small back room oh i don't know that one it's a Powell and Pressburger from the 40s. Really good one. Okay. So uh, at the uh, in the fireworks company, quote unquote, we see Palmer looking at a lady, you know, looking her up and down behind the counter and Dolby looking at it. 
you know, watching, watching Palmer watching. And uh, one of the things I, I really like when Dolby, you know, moves forward and he's not watching Palmer, he pushes one of the TNT plungers down just for kicks, just to see what happens. <laughs> and then there's a sound like immediately afterwards, but it's right. just a guy with a drill. Well, it's it's a guy who's uh, running the thing to uh, take the serial numbers off his new gun, I think. But yeah, it sounds like he started something with the plunger. He's like, whoop. <laughs> like, uh-oh. <laughs> He's just a natural-born Liverpooler, as uh, Ringo Starr calls himself in Yellow Submarine. <laughs> <laughs> so they they take his gun away uh, and issue him a new Colt 32. So not like, do you, please. Do you know who invented the Colt? <laughs> I, I do know who invented the Colt. Johnny Revolver. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> this could come up later. It might. So they, they go to this briefing or screening room, like kind of uh, a little room where they watch tapes and they're or watch little film strips of people and are briefed on what they have to do. And of course, he sits next to the pretty lady, Courtney. Of course, yeah. We we're, we've we we consistently established that Palmer is into ladies. It is his primary interest, other but than he's not, But he's not gross about it. That's right. He's never weird about it. He's just straightforward. He's uh, upfront and he's charming. You know, yeah. it helps that he's Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it helps a lot. Yeah. So uh, uh, one of the things that I like, just a sort of a running thing that's never commented on, all of the people they're spying on have code names of birds. Oh, yeah. You got Blue Jay, Sparrow, House Martin. <laughs> yeah, I never really made that connection, but yeah. Yeah, just notice it. It's kind of fun. So our, our first guy, Eric Ashley Grantby, Blue Jay. Uh, Dolby has a lot of respect for him. Oh, so, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know why, but he's like, well, if he has R or Radcliffe, we'll, he'll sell to the highest bidder, and that's got to be us. <laughs> it's it's that kind of a money laundering scheme when you when you kind of unravel it, right? Oh, looking back, you know, that's also got to be part of it. Because the scheme is very, it's hard to really figure. It's it's a mixture of things, but. Uh, spoilers, ultimately, Dolby is in on the scheme. He's uh, with Grantby. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's sort of like back and forth the whole time. You're, you're never sure whether it's Dolby or Ross that's uh, the one who's betraying Palmer. Well, Ross actually does a really interesting thing later on where he sets himself up as a red herring intentionally just to just to test them. Just as a test, just for fun. And it, it's fun that it, it sort of makes sense when you get to it at the end. It's like, yeah, that kind of tracks that this is this sort of stupid organization where they just do these bullshit things just to make sure that people can be trusted. And then they kind of just leave it as a loose thread and forget about it. And it's like, oh, yeah, shit, that might cause me some problems down the road. Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of uh, future proofing in the organization. No. <laughs> so uh, one of the things we notice, he pulls Courtney into his office when he goes out, uh, Dolby. He he takes Courtney aside. So this is the other thing that is established, that it's unclear who's 
employing Courtney, who Courtney is working for. Mm-hmm. And they have a big, uh, a small argument about it later. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, it, it comes up a few times and it's sort of unclear at, at different points. It sort of uh, seems to potentially go back and forth. Mm-hmm. So he, he meets his other guy, Jock Carswell or Jack. It's Jack or Jock kind of used interchangeably. Yeah, he's the, uh, I guess, the new best friend. He would be the Nick Frost to the Simon Pegg. Yeah. This were Hot Fuzz. Yeah, he, he's the other guy who sort of gets him and sort of kind of half works as a partner in a way. And he, Kinda, he gives yeah. him, yeah, he, he gives him a lay of the land. He's like, well, uh, no, Courtney isn't Dolby's girl. You don't need to worry about that. I, I don't know if Dolby's even into girls. It just doesn't seem to be his thing. <laughs> so he shows him to his office. Uh, and we get Alice, the office admin, and he just she just gives him so many forms, just forms and forms and forms. <laughs> oh, yeah. We didn't mention that he had to sign a form to get his Colt 32. Of course, you got to sign a form. <laughs> it wasn't even mentioned. He just took the clipboard, signed it. <laughs> and he's assigned a blue Zodiac, which is a, a Ford Zodiac. Uh, I think they were okay. only made in Britain or whatever. Uh, when we actually see it, notably, it's missing one of the letters, too. It's a Zodic. <laughs> <laughs> like that. It was a nice, nice, subtle touch. Again, never really pointed out. You just see it if you look at the front of the car. <laughs> I love the idea of the working class spy. It's great. <laughs> and it's pretty realistic. Like, this is what actual spy work is kind of like. Yeah. I, I just imagine that uh, that Harry Palmer became a spy because he thought it would be like James Bond. Then he found out what it's actually like, and now he can't really get out of it. And it's like, well, it's a job. Job's a job. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> supports my lifestyle, whatever. I don't want to have to go back to the employment office, man. The guy that yeah. runs that's a real tool. <laughs> so uh, th- this is where he's complaining about, like, oh, you, we have to fill out a T-101 for absolutely every single individual thing you do. This is where it's like, I'm going to have to fill out like 19 of them if I go to all of these different places. That's insane. I'm not going to do that. He's like, nah, I'm just not going to do it. And it's like, well, Dolby's not going to like it. And it's like, well, tough. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dolby has a different way of doing things for me. That's all. I'm, I'm leaving. See ya. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I've been in the business long enough to know that these forms aren't essential. Yeah, I, I can I can leave this TPS report behind. Sorry. Yes, if you could just finish the T-101s, that'd be great. Right, it's, it's like somewhere in between James Bond and Office Space. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so he goes to Scotland Yard where he has an inn, his buddy Pat. And Pat is like complaining about, oh, you know, I'm always a... Uh, helping you out in all these ways you know what have you ever done for me it's like i'd do anything for you pat (laughs) (laughs) and uh, of course pat just uh, asked like well you know that lady you were with the other night i want the uh, that blonde i want her number it's like why you dirty old man (laughs) (laughs) and he gets the the file on grantby which it's it's helpful, but it doesn't seem like it should be helpful when we first see the information, because he only has three parking tickets. And it's weird that he had to, like, that he didn't already have the file on Granby. Although maybe that's just, maybe he's, maybe he's I, the one who has to be the guy who gets the file for the rest of the office. 
It, well, I, I would have to imagine it's a thing where they just don't have any real it, – it's – all of these institutions tend to be adversarial. You you can't oh, have a lot of intergovernmental cooperation for whatever reason. This happens in the states as well between all of the different police departments. You see yeah, that in Zodiac. Yeah, right. Jurisdictional dick-wagging. So much of it, Yeah. So I, I assume it's there, and he just has an in, so he's able to go get the file, which turns out to be pretty helpful because all three of these parking tickets are the same place. Thurlow Gardens. Mm-hmm. And one's just two weeks old. Yeah, and he's like, okay, well, I got the plate number here so I can identify his car, and I know he's always hanging out in this one place enough to get lots of parking tickets there, so, you know, uh, let's go check that out. And, of course... Pat asks for the number. He's like, oh, yeah, disconnected. And he just, like, heads out the door. Like, screw you. <laughs> so Palmer watches uh, Grant B's car until someone comes to fill the meter. And he looks like an obvious henchman, tough, bald guy. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the guy from the train. Yeah, the guy from the train. And he's also House Martin, the the guard, the bodyguard to Blue Jay. Mm-hmm. So Palmer follows him to just this, it must be some ancient British library, just beautiful old library with uh, this balcony mm-hmm. and shadows him from a floor above. But he gets noticed and then he just decides to be really ostentatious since he's been noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you've got a piece of equipment and I'd like to buy it. Well, first, he he gets up to the highest point in the library and stands at a balcony and just kind of leans over until he makes eye contact with Grantby and just kind of locks eyes with him. He's like, all right, I'll just confidently walk right down to you. Is this one where we also see like that Drew Carey looking guy in the background? Yes, he's hanging out in the background. Yeah. I'm glad you knew who I was talking about. Absolutely. Well, because it's the silence part uh, when he keeps looking up when they keep talking. So yeah. it kind of seems like he's just going to shush them at first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we don't really get a hint about who this Drew Carey looking guy is until a bit later. But yeah, he's here, too. Of course. So uh, he, he comes down to him. Grant B is studying a text on uh, metal fatigue in engineering, which I, I think... Uh, has something to do with the stress box later, but it's not totally clear because we know it hangs from a big crossbeam in the room. Yeah, that's... It would have to have something to do with that, I would mm. think. Yeah, I mean, it's gotta. Or maybe so, he's just really interested in this shit. Maybe. So, so Palmer tells him, okay, we're looking for this item that we lost on a train, this uh, piece of scientific equipment. <laughs> Uh, and we'd like to make a deal. And he's very loud. They're in a library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does feel like he's going to get shushed at any time. Well, because Grant B. First just says shush and points to the silence sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Palmer just pauses for a moment and then he continues w- without like any decrease in volume or any like change <laughs> in tone whatsoever. And he's like, we'd be willing to make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Grant B. writes a phone number on this sheet of green paper. And says, all right, call me here after six. And Palmer is smart. He goes out and tries the number immediately, and it's disconnected. (laughs) It's the same trick he just pulled. (laughs) I mean, how many times do you think women have done this to him at the cafe or at the club? Well, to him, probably never. 
yeah, it probably doesn't happen to him a lot, but yeah, he he's wise at a, wise to the the kind of tricks that people pull. It's a pretty basic trick. Yeah. So he he spots Grampy and Baldy leaving already and runs after them. And there's uh, the the Drew Carey guy with his taped up glasses, uh, who he he's watching from behind the call box while they have their first sort of actual fight. Like he starts to brawl with the bald guy. Yeah, this is cool. We kind of see it from far away. Like we're not we're not in the fight like we usually are in these kind of fight scenes. We're like in behind the call box and we see it sort of distantly on the steps. We're sort of seeing it kind of from the the other guy's POV. Sort of, yeah. Because that's where he's lurking is back behind the call box. Mm-hmm. So they, they fight briefly, but like uh, the, the guy just runs away. It's another really cool long shot where it's in the back. It, it's shot through the rear mirror of the car. And the guy runs and gets in, and the car speeds away, and we see Palmer running after. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So back in the briefing room, they, you know, everybody's supposed to present their stuff, and nobody's <laughs> got anything except Palmer. Oh, I got nothing, nothing. Mm-mm. I didn't even go out. <laughs> Palmer's like, oh yeah, no, I made contact with him. He's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and he gives the paper to uh, Dolby. And then he just goes and picks up groceries and goes home, even though he's supposed to be at work. <laughs> I, I love the scene of him in the grocery store. That's not quite yet. That's oh, no, that's not on. this one. Cause that's oh. when he meets up with Ross later. Mm-hmm. But first, yeah, he, he, get, he's just coming home with groceries. Oh, oh, this one. Okay. I know. Runs yeah. into Courtney, just uh, searching his apartment. It's interesting. Like it looks really cool because he just looks through the keyhole first and you just see the gun barrel. But then he opens the door and it turns out she's just casually just holding it. Yeah. yeah. It it looks like it's pointed at the door and it is, but she's just kind of looking at it and inspecting it. And he has his gun out. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, it's you. <laughs> Were you sent by Dolby? He's like, you're supposed to be at work. It's like, well, I suppose you are at work right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yeah. Well, uh, do you find everything? Pretty much. Like, well, then you know where the whiskey is. Why don't you borrow some? <laughs> <laughs> Go fix me some whiskey since you know where it is now. Yeah. No, fix us both some. And he just starts cooking dinner right away. <laughs> like, yeah, well, whatever. He's like, well, so you're into books, uh, women, music, cooking. He's like, well, I like birds best. <laughs> <laughs> and we get just a very brief background on Courtney that she got into the business because her husband was in it, but he was killed in Tokyo. And that's really all we know about him. Yeah, we don't find out what's what happened there. No, just, you know, so some previous mission that he, he yeah. got killed on. So she got into the biz for, you know, I was like, well, I, I have an in. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Palmer had gotten into it because he was in the military, in the barracks on detention, which is not surprising at all, given what we know of him already. <laughs> Because he was scamming the German army while he was stationed in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Ross is holding over him. Uh, Even uh, though you should be able to do that if you're... Well, I guess it depends on what time period this is. Yeah, it depends. Like, th- he he's kind of doing the Milo Minderbinder thing from Catch-22, I guess, where he's just... Mm. 
running the thing. Uh, it, it's sort of a consistent character that appears in most war films, so it, it does sort of see, seem like a thing that he could get away with, but not in peacetime, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess it depends if he was there in wartime or peacetime. So cute thing where he's making all the dinner, and she's like, well, you're... Uh, he she he's sort of assumed that she's going to stay for dinner and it's like oh well uh is is easy enough to cook for two as it is for one and she says no thanks i'm not hungry and makes no motion whatsoever to leave yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh well i'm i'm not here for food <laughs> <laughs> so pat calls him at the office next day and uh they've picked up house martin the the bald guy Ooh. So uh, him and Carswell go down to lock up to check on the guy. But the desk guy's like, oh, Mr. Palmer, he just left. Oh, yeah, this part. <laughs> he's like, he puts out his badge. He's like, yeah, yeah, we've got everything under control, sir. Everything's great. He's smiling. He's like, oh, no, perfect. No, Mr. Palmer just left. It's like, uh, I'm Mr. Palmer. <laughs> it's like, and oh, that's not His good. face just drops. Like, <laughs> Uh, like shows him his actual ID. It's like, you didn't get ID from the other guy. I take it (laughs) like, uh, so they, they go to the cell and of course house Martin is dead. I love this shot. It shot through like the grating of the door. So you just see their heads. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, there's like, Oh, well, what about the suitcase full of evidence? And like the other gentleman took that like, ah, good, good. (laughs) Right. Right. The guy. Yeah. You, uh, great. Uh, so make did sure you... you fill out your form. <laughs> right. And it's like, so did you at least look at what was in it? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, well, yeah, sir, no, we... we didn't really know what it was. It was some electrical components. Great. Where did you pick him up? Uh, near Sanderson's? It's this disused factory on the edge of town. It's like, ah, uh, well, you know, we can go check that place out. That's. No, uh, it's it's cool how Palmer very cleverly is able to find these things by just following the paper trail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so he calls this guy Kitely for a TX-82. And the guy's like, well, you need CC-1 clearance for that. <laughs> he's like, well, guess what? I happen to have CC-1 clearance. And like, OK. Uh, and then it, them all go into the factory. And it turns out, I guess the TX-82 is sort of like a SWAT exercise. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Although they, they we never. It's, it's a never, raid truck. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never clearly spelled out as more like you called in the TX-32. Let's TX-82. get on with it. Or, yeah. TX-82. <laughs> let's get on with it. Yeah. And it's always just let's get on with it then. And he's like, well, all right. I mean, we're all here, so we may as well. He's like, all right, lose that door. And they drive the van through the factory door, but factory's empty. There's just this big steel crossbar on a crane, which is actually, as it turns out, a big part of their thing. Yeah, they don't know what it is at first. They're like, what the hell's this thing? Huh, whatever, probably junk. Right. And then they're looking around, and he's like, well, shit, there's nothing here. And... Palmer muses, like, if Radcliffe had been here, I'd have been a hero. And Toby's like, he wasn't and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the guy in charge of the TX-88 goes up to up to Dolby. He's like, you know, what does he say? Something like, we're not, 
Yeah, nobody was here. That's not good enough, Dolby. Right, and he he does he does ultimately find the thing. Well, first he dresses him down like next time you uh, something about the the CC one clearance. Like you better actually have it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next time you claim CC one clearance, you better actually have it. But uh, Palmer redeems himself a bit because he finds this partially burnt piece of audio tape that has the word Ipcress on it. Like the name of the movie. Oh, that's if you know that's got to be important. Yep. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, it's still a bit of a mystery. And they go play it and it just makes all these weird noises, like metal noises. Like, huh. Yeah, really, really unpleasant. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's kind of like metal machine music by Lou Reed. Not a popular album. <laughs> One I kind of dig, though. <laughs> All right. So Palmer goes grocery shopping, runs into Ross. <laughs> this is the scene that you're talking about. This is a great scene. This is it. a great scene. They're like trying to talk work, but all these they're blocking the aisleway. So all these people keep pushing back past them. and They have to stop talking. And it's just. It's Everything like this takes... cramped little fucking tiny place, and they just keep <laughs> crashing into people's carts. <laughs> they crash into each other. <laughs> All the time. And Ross does not understand packaged groceries. Like, it's a to- like you know, again, upper class twit. He is, it's his first time ever in a supermarket. He does not know what to make of any of this shit. <laughs> I don't like these American methods of purchasing goods. And I'm like, what other methods are there, dude? What life do you live? Where My do fa- you get them? <laughs> I, he, he sends servants to do it. Underlings. <laughs> My favorite <laughs> My favorite line he has is, uh, you know, he pulls a, a can off of and is like, beefaroni, extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> pulls off another one. That's baby food, sir. Yeah, that's baby food. You probably don't want that one. <laughs> so he's asking... Palmer about the Ipcrest tape. He's like, I'd like you, I, I want to see it, and I don't want Dolby to know about it, so here, it's a camera, get it on microfilm. I'm like, well, I don't understand how photographing an audio tape is going to help you, to be quite honest. You know, that's a very, very valid point. <laughs> uh, unless spy camera converts photographs of audio <laughs> tape into actual audio? I mean, ultimately, it, it isn't much of a scheme because it is just a test. He's just fucking with him to see if he'll do it. And because yep. he has he he holds the thing over him. He's like, you know, I still have that thing. You could go back to those barracks. And he does refuse. Like Palmer's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. No, just forget it. Not working for you anymore. <laughs> I'll <Hey>. chance it. <laughs> yeah, you transferred me. Right. And so, he doesn't have your sense of humor. He wouldn't yeah, put up with that. As it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we see Palmer cooking for Courtney again. And he, he this is where he asks her, like, you're working for Ross. And she says, no, don't be silly. I'm working for Dolby. You're the one working for Ross. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm working for Dolby. You're working for Ross. They go back and forth a bit. Yeah, and it's not really clear who's right at this point. It's like, well, I mean, they... I mean, either of them could be telling the truth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they could also not really know who they're working for. They, they, they kind of get bored and like, 
do you always wear your glasses? I'm like, yes, except in bed. And she like takes them off. I'm like, oh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hint taken. Yeah. So next day they're or maybe later in the week, they're making weekend plans on Friday morning. <laughs> the two of them. And Dolby's like, nope, you're working this weekend. <laughs> you're going to a great concert with me. Yeah, because the, the number that Grant B. wrote out was on this flyer for a concert of the Band of the Irish Guards. Military <laughs> fucking pomp and circumstance type music. Dolby is so stoked. Oh, he's into it. It's so his thing. <laughs> Good Palmer. patriotic stuff. Palmer is so bored. <laughs> he's got like his hand resting. Or, uh, Dolby has his hand resting on his cane and he's just like moving one hand back and forth. Not really in time with anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can tell he's having a blast either way. It's so him. And he's like, oh, not really my kind of thing. Uh, I'm more into Mozart. And he's like, oh, well, you're quite lucky. Is playing a Mozart tune next. <laughs> oh, are they? Okay. Yes, they are. <laughs> so we see the, the Drew Carey type guy, the dude with the taped up glasses. Yep. And Grantby shows up. He sits right beside Dalby. It's like he recognizes him. I mean, he knows Palmer anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they barter over this piece of scientific equipment that was lost. Basically and, uh, exactly the same way Palmer does it, but yeah, successfully. Using their code words. Yeah. And it, he, they come to, it's like, all right, you give me 25,000 pounds cash, we'll, we'll give you Radcliffe back. They don't say that, but, you know, we'll we'll give you that reward. Yeah. And the, the trade is held in this underground parking garage. I love the choreographed dance of the trade. It's very fun. You got your, each of them have... Uh, an ambulance and two machine gunners. <laughs> <laughs> they both have like they both come piling out like of the different vehicles like a like it's a clown car. Yeah, they they're like everybody's standing to attention. They they kind of mirror each other. Both both of them have a stretcher. They you know check Radcliffe's uh, vital signs and everything. Yeah, while the other guy's counting the money in the briefcase. It's intense. <laughs> yeah, it, you know it's a. Not that huge. It's 25,000. You know, they're not getting like a million or anything. And it goes off pretty smoothly. But then Palmer notices our Drew Carrig fucking guy. Is, uh, this guy with the taped up glasses lurking around and moving around behind one of the cars. And he fucking machine guns him to death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Drew Carey. We never learned your name. Nope, we never do. Uh, it, the Dolby goes and checks on him. He's like, well, he's an American. He's an American agent, but I don't really give a shit. It's, <laughs> Dolby doesn't care at all. No. Like, oh, you know, the, the Americans are not going to be too happy with you for this, but, you know, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> not my thing. You're the one who did it. Yeah. He's like, well, the important thing is that Radcliffe is fine. And uh, you're now, you know, since you took over for that guy who died at the beginning, you're going to be his bodyguard. Yep. So, so we see him following him around, and he also notices that there's this black guy with a pipe, smoking a pipe, who's following either Palmer or Radcliffe or both. The world's most inconspicuous tale. <laughs> the only black person we've seen in this movie. He might be the, only, <laughs> the only black person, I think. 
I think he is. So, yeah, he's quite conspicuous. And he happens to sit in on the lecture with uh, Dr. Radcliffe, his first lecture back after his kidnapping. It doesn't go so good. Doesn't go great. Uh, He's supposed to perform this lecture on fusion, but he just seems to have been mind wiped. As it turns out, they look back and it's like, yeah, it just seems everything related to uh, his science is gone. It's just been erased somehow. It's like, oh, well, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. <Shit. laughs> and the so, black guy's trying to get away. Yeah, Palmer tells him when, once he notices he's in the audience and he talks to him and he's like, yeah, I'm CIA. I'm following you because you killed one of our guys. I'm going to make sure you're not uh, some kind of villain over here. And if you are, you know, you better watch out. If you're not clean, I'll fucking take you down. Yep. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> God, I do kind of appreciate the way the American guy just straight up says it and doesn't use any code words, though. Yeah, and I would say that's also intentionally a contrast between the American way of doing things and the British way of doing things. Because mm-hmm. he's just like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm following you because you killed our guy. And uh, if it turns out you're not on the up and up, I'm going to fucking off you. So just yeah. watch out, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to be covert. I'm CIA, bitch. Yeah, come on. I, I stick out everywhere here. I am already aware of it. <laughs> I'm a black dude with a bowler hat and a pipe. Yeah, like I'm I'm just, I'm leaning into it. What do you care? <laughs> so Dolby meets Ross. They they do a walk in the park to discuss the whole Radcliffe situation. This is where we find out the stuff about the mind wiping. <laughs> Grampy's really uh, salty about mm, well, I'm, these these damaged goods <laughs> we received. <laughs> I want to get our money back. <laughs> <sighs> or, or sorry, Dalby is salty about receiving the damaged goods from Grantby rather. And yeah. like, well, we should contact Grantby and get our money back. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll send Palmer to do it, obviously. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Now he's our collections guy. <laughs> so he's sent to Grantby and he, he goes to talk to him. It's like, well, we they they want the money back because of the damaged goods. He's like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was that. just delivering, man. I, I'm not responsible for the state of the goods. Yeah, I'm just a courier here. Not my not my problem. So back at the office, Carswell is the guy who ultimately cracks the Ipcress thing. What Ipcress is. And <laughs> It's impressive because it is hard to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. How did well, we don't find out how, but yeah. So um, the it, it stands for and this doesn't make any sense, but it's the induction of psychoneuroses. So IP by conditioned R reflex or CR under str- ESS stress. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible acronym. That does not work. But you yeah, know what? Uh, I could take any book in the world and also do that. And that's the Ipcress file now. Yeah. So Ipcress, and and that's what it is. It the 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 Ipcress file or the Ipcress tape. It's a. I mean, it's an MK Ultra mind wipe thing where you just sort of uh, can brainwash people through putting them in a psycho box. Mm-hmm. So Carswell goes to Radcliffe's and he gets killed. Oh, uh, yeah, because he was in uh, Palmer's car. Yeah, he's he's in Palmer's Zodiac or Zodic. 
and he's stopped at a stoplight and he gets fucking sniper rifled. And Palmer thinks it's the Americans who did it because he, he's, you know, the, the guy came right out and threatened him. So he's like, I think because it was in my car, it might just be the CIA. This might not have anything to do with the Upcrest file. It might not. <laughs> so Courtney's like, OK, you you just move in with me because if, uh, you know, we, we don't want people showing up to kill you at your apartment. And he locks yeah. up the the Ipcress or the Induction of Psychoneuroses by Conditioned Reflex Under Stress book into his office drawer. And then he yeah. goes back to his apartment to get his stuff to move into Courtney's. But what he finds there, and <laughs> I love this shot. Very cool shot. The overhead of, uh, I guess we never got his name either. The, the, the black C agent. Yeah, the yeah. CIA guy. He's dead in Palmer's apartment. Yep, and we see it, like, overhead through a lampshade so that the bulb is covering up wherever he's been wounded or shot from. Right, through the, the light fixture at the top of the, like, from the ceiling. It's so rad. <laughs> it's so cool. Every single shot in the movie does this. It's awesome. It's, it's like, my favorite part. Yeah, it's so rad. So, of course, Palmer rushes back to the office because he's like, oh, shit. The, someone might be on to more of this, and the book has been already stolen from his desk. Immediately, like instantly. He's been gone for maybe five minutes. Well, no, he has to walk back home. He's probably been gone longer. Yeah, although I, I assume probably Dolby did it. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean. So it, it was just someone in the office. It, but yeah, it would have been It could Dolby. have been five minutes. He probably just was like looking. Oh, he's got up. Time to go. Yeah. That took 30 seconds. So Palmer phones Dolby to meet him. He's like, yes, yes, I know. T-108. <laughs> <laughs> Which turns out not to be a form, but the location of the meetup. It's the number on the bench. Yep. So he fills Dolby in on the, the latest goings on what he thinks. It's like, well, I think I'm being framed for the murder of the CIA agent. And I'm pretty sure it's Ross because he has this thing on me and he wanted me to do this microfilm thing. So this is Ross having shot himself in the foot with his stupid test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Dolby's like, okay, I got it. Lose yourself. Just, you know, go. I, I don't even want to know where you're going to be. I'll deal with the body in your apartment. Uh, just go uh, f figure something out. But and as he's about to drive away, I love this line. He's like, but I'm being framed for murder. <laughs> what do I do? Can't do anything. You're just too hot. Yeah, you're just too hot. So he goes, he kisses Courtney goodbye. He leaves to catch the train and she phones Ross to tell him what's going on, which seems sinister at, in the moment. But it's kind of what saves him ultimately. Yeah, yeah, because right now, right now we're believing that Ross is the villain. Right. It's a very effectively deployed red herring. It makes perfect sense. And just we're we're sort of living in Palmer's head through a lot of it, as well as just, you know, we're we're covertly watching all of it. So with the information withheld from him and us, it makes perfect sense that Ross is the bad guy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So Palmer catches the train uh, at the same platform that Radcliffe was abducted and his predecessor was killed. Yep. And uh, 
Dalby meets up with Ross at some gentleman's club. And Ross is like, you better go pick up Grantby. You know, just uh, go arrest him. We'll we'll figure out what's going on from there. It's funny that arresting Grantby has never been their agenda up until this point. Yeah, I'm like, we'll we'll just pay him off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's probably not involved with the main thing. He's just a go-between, right? He's probably not the bad guy. (laughs) He's upper class. He doesn't need a super villain lair. <laughs> so on uh, Palmer on the train, uh, someone knocks to ask for the tickets. And Palmer is pretty sure it's going to be someone with the gun. So he gets his gun ready and he prepares for it. But he still gets a drop on him. The guy yeah. just thrusts the gun in the door into his face. He's like, ah, well, all right. And he wakes up in this very cold cell. Mm-hmm. Uh where a lot of people have barked down a lot of days that they've been in this cell. Right. And they turn like they, they have a food slot, but when he reaches for the food, it's too hot to touch. I was wondering about that. If it was like too hot or too cold, because either way, the bread is in the water and the water is definitely too something. I think it's too hot because the room is very cold. Oh. So, cause he, he mentions that they're starving and freezing him. Right, right. So I I guess he's like in this very cold cell and they just keep like this boiling hot stuff that he just can't touch it. Because, you know, with cold fingers, the really hot stuff is really, really hot. Yeah. And and, you know, if he doesn't get it on the first try, it's like, nope, nope, nope. They immediately shut the door. Shut it. (laughs) Try again tomorrow. Yeah. So after five days of this, a doctor comes in and then Grampy. Grampy's like, well, you're in Albania. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yep that's why the guards don't speak english and you know uh palmer had had read the ipcress book the the literal ipcress file so yeah. he knows that that's what they're doing to him he's like well i i know that you're trying to do this ipcress shit to me uh, <laughs> uh i and i'm i'm not gonna fall for it i'm just not gonna do it i i see what you're doing yeah i'm just gonna i know how to resist it i read the book yeah so they try it anyway. They put him in the yeah. box. It's it's a week of him being in there. We see him do seven marks on the wall. And they put him in this box that's hung from the crossbeam that we saw earlier. This reminds me kind of of Get Out, actually. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, the way he the way he like kind of distracts himself or like does. Oh, I, I can't. It's, it is a similar thing that he does because he cuts himself on the straps and, yeah. you know, uh, stops himself from being hypnotized uh, as a result, which is basically what uh, happens in Get Out. It's how More he or less, yeah. manages to withstand the uh, the hypnotism or whatever with the, the videotape. Mm-hmm. So he, he gets the Ipcrest treatment. They put him in this metal box with all these film projectors around him and that sound plays... And, Here it becomes psychedelic almost. Oh yeah, because he's just in this abstract metal space, and they have all these non, uh, like it, it's just weird images, like abstract imagery. Yeah, kind of like it's like experimental yeah, the, the, films from the fifties. Kind of looks like a like two thousand one Space Odyssey, but not quite. It's sort of like structural film. It's it's very it it sort of just colors and uh, patterns, but no real images. Nothing mm-hmm. 
nothing physical to it. So they're trying to make him forget the Ipcress file and forget his name. And he just keeps yelling, my name is Harry Palmer and hurting himself so that he uh, can't fully go under. Yeah. And of course, they realize what he did when they see his bloody wrists. He's like, oh, we're going to have to add some extra padding to those. And they start sleep depriving him because uh, in between all of the Ipcrest sessions, like they, they keep doing Ipcrest sessions with him and just like pulling him out of sleep. Every time he starts to fall asleep, they go and throw him in the box again. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite subtitles I've ever seen. Just they, they them cutting back and forth between it and subtitle says the Ipcrest noise in brackets. <laughs> Ipcrest noise. I like that. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so they do ultimately seem to make him forget. And I guess they, it sort of works. Kind they, of. They program him to this taped voice, which turns out to be Dolby. Saying, now listen to me. Now listen to me. Every time you'll hear this voice say, now listen to me, you will listen to it. Exactly. So he wakes up, he overpowers the guards, and he escapes. And he finds that he's just still in London. <laughs> he's just like, oh, this is where I was before. This is that factory earlier. Yeah, this is like, I could, just, I could walk to my house from here. So he calls up Dalby. And it, we learn that Dalby is the double agent, although he does not, because it shows the other end of the line, and Dalby's just sitting there with Grantby. <laughs> yeah, like behind a lampshade. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's such a cool shot with the red lampshade occupying mm -hmm. almost all of it and just a little bit of Dolby's face at one side. When he yeah, starts he to, just... now listen to me, now listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That rules. And, yeah, and then we just see, uh, see Gatby. Grantby. Grantby, yeah. We just see him like beside him at the, at the end of the call. Yeah, and they're like, oh, uh, well, I kind of plan to have him there a little bit longer. I don't know if this if the programming's done. It's like, ah, oh, well, send him back. Tell him to uh, call Ross to the warehouse, and we'll just deal with the whole thing. Hey, that's a plan. Yeah. So at the warehouse, Palmer waits, and he gets the drop on Dolby. You know, he, he's got a gun ready, and he has Dolby come in, and he's like, I don't really trust you either. I'm going to just let's let's play this out and see what's going on. Ross shows up. He has both of them stand up against a wall. About like yep. e equidistant from a one the the one bare bulb in the ceiling. It's like I, I need to keep an eye on both of you. So he's sort of not sure who he wants to shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he hasn't he hasn't quite figured it out yet. He's like, one of you knows exactly what happened to me. And I'm not sure who it is. And they, he's like, okay, present your cases. <laughs> <laughs> now listen to me. Now listen to me. Right. I mean, that, that's kind of what uh, really tips him off. But Ross first is like, look, I, I asked about the microfilm to test you. It was just a stupid test. You you passed. I mean, we're, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> you You did know that taking a picture of a microfilm won't do anything. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You're good at your job. And uh, Dolby's like, well, you know, Ross killed Carswell. 
And Ross is like, that's bloody ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and Ross is like, look, okay, I admit it. Courtney is working for me, but she's not spying on you. She's spying on Dolby. Because <laughs> I've been suspicious of him the whole time. That's why I sent you in there. And then this is where Ross, or not Ross, uh, Dolby kind of is like, all right, now listen to me. Listen to me. Shoot the traitor. Shoot Ross. Yeah, yeah. And, he says, first he says shoot Ross, and then he says shoot the traitor. And right. I'm like, yeah. you just shot yourself in the foot. Right, because it, it's it's unclear, because it's sort of also an act of defiance and insubordination. True. Being core to his character. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he, he's, he's not going along with it anyway. He's fighting it and doing... You know, he does the sh- thing with the shaky gun fighting against the hypnosis. Yeah, and when he finally gets himself, uh, before he shoots, he, like, slams his injured hand against uh, the camera that's next to him to, like, sort of jolt him with pain. So yeah. final act of insubordination, he shoots Dolby, and he he kind of admonishes Ross and, like, man, you used me. You really suck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of all the shit that could have happened to me. I could have been an MK Ultra. And Ross is like, well, that's what you're paid for. <laughs> and just the credits roll over Dolby's corpse just laying on the floor after they walk away. That's the end. Yeah. <laughs> just it's a very down to earth spy thriller. And just it's such an interesting internal strife spy movie. Really nothing else like it, I think. I haven't seen anything like it, no. Because there's sort of, like, you see stuff like Infernal Affairs or uh, The Departed, where it has the the internal workings of a police department, but just the (laughs) interdepartment strife in British intelligence is uh, (laughs) something I've never really seen done before outside of this, and it's so interesting. Yeah. Of course, the style is amazing. (laughs) But uh, it makes being a spy look so unfun it makes it look like any office job (laughs) except you know someone might dose you or someone might decide to mind wipe you just to figure out if it works (laughs) (laughs) like yeah it's it's very um uh it 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 doesn't make it seem that attractive (laughs) the the (laughs) way the way the bond movies do uh so this, uh, of course, there. this is a box set. Uh, the next one in the set is the next movie, Funeral in Berlin. Again, he. this is one. Palmer goes international. He has to go to do a thing in Berlin. Okay. I'm interested to see how this escalates, if it escalates at this one or if it... It does. It, it escalates each time. The third one is a huge, ridiculous All escalation. Right. So uh, it's either that versus, of course, we go back to Sartana with uh, the third one of those. I can't actually remember the title of the third one. Let's look it up real quick. Well, it's always something like if you see Sartana, he's going to fucking shoot you because killing is what Sartana (laughs) does and you will die. Right. Uh, I think it's the. The. The one with the. Ah, Sartana's here, trade your pistol for a coffin. <laughs> That's the title. I like that one, but... Good title, yeah. Yeah, but there's only three in this if Chris, or this um, Harry Palmer set. Mm. 
and we and we were both, I think, a little disappointed with the last Sartana movie. So let's uh, let's keep following this trail for now. Sounds good. We'll uh, put a funeral in Berlin on the list. All right. So do you have any last thoughts before we move on to part two? Uh, no, I better get started on all the uh, podcast paperwork. All righty. Fill out those T107s. <laughs> all right. Uh, on to part two. And we're back for our second part, where we're continuing with British cinema. This time, 2008 uh, Best Picture winner, Slumdog Millionaire, by uh, director Danny Boyle. Or Train Spotting in India, except it's got also a lot of, not. Yeah, I mean, it's got a similar energy to Train Spotting. It's doing kind of a similar thing where it's looking at something really dark, but with a real positive kinetic energy and sort of trying to find the fun in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it, it's like that he captures that human element of it, because even if you're living in the slums and your life sucks and his life does suck, oh, yeah. uh, Rough he, he's going to, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's going to find the fun where he can. And it's not, he's not going to be miserable 100% of the time. There's going to be, ups and downs right it kind of reminds me of, have you ever seen pennies from heaven no i don't think so it, it, it's a, a there there's an american movie and it's based on a british miniseries and uh, i i haven't seen the original miniseries but the movie uh has christopher walken and he does some dancing in it so you know i had to see it mm, right but it, it's sort of contrasting how in the 30s like during the great depression lavish hollywood musicals were the dominant like blockbuster format oh okay interesting and it's sort of contrasting the bleakness of the great depression and just sort of going into these surreal beautiful giant busby berkeley-esque dance sequences song and dance sequences when these things happen so it's it's this movie kind of feels like it's doing that kind of thing where it has all the horror of the slums, but it's putting it in a Bollywood framework, which is the classic 30s lavish Hollywood musical style with the out of nowhere long song and dance numbers. Uh, and it, it, it's sort of the the major slums in India are not unlike that are are not unlike the great depression continuing to this day mhm mhm it's uh it, it it's a lot in there there's uh, there's yeah. a lot going on uh it's very crowded it's very claustrophobic it's um, pretty much the poorest place on earth and it's kind of crazy because the specific place he's in juhu is both the richest and the poorest place you know, like the the top Bollywood stars live here, but it's right next to just the worst slum. There is a scene where they literally cross a street and suddenly it's from the slums and it's suddenly sunshine, happy town. Yeah, it, it's not unlike what you see in Parasite with the contrast between the two areas, mm -hmm. the the rich and the poor areas where where you have the storm and just to the the poor section just fills up with water because it's down the hill. Uh, but it's a good thing it washed all the pollution out of the sky, though. Oh, yeah, no, it's so lovely. Yeah, up here. 
Right. I mean, who cares about down there? We're up here. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, this also this movie has a lot more uh, trains and more important trains than train spotting does. A lot of train action. I would say my favorite sequences both have to do with trains and train stations for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, both man, of the peak everything. musical moments of this movie. <laughs> and there's a few, uh, but yeah, the the best ones involve trains or stations or both. Yeah, to me, just like the two peak moments of the movie, and they're both musical sequences in a sense. Uh, musical one one's montage and one's you know the actual song and dance, uh, and they're both yeah they're train centric. Mm-hmm. And also, <clears throat> yeah, the soundtrack of this is great. Train spotting really fucking good. Fantastic score. I listened to this a ton when it came out. I worked at HMV at the time, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and it, you know, it's just a, you know, it was a very popular soundtrack this won all sorts of awards i believe it won best score at the oscars as well as this winning best picture it was uh i didn't realize that this was the song or the movie that popularized the super happy fun gunshot song that i still don't know what it's called paper planes by mia great fucking song all i want to do is boom 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 and a ching choo pink floyd money sounds take your money Uh, it, it's I I really love that album. Uh, I was a fan of that MIA album quite a bit, so it was cool when that one really blew up. Uh, she is she was heavily involved in this score, like she actually appears on some of the other tracks and uh, okay. worked on the score with Ar Rahman, uh, who's the uh, actual Bollywood composer that they got to do the score. Oh, okay, cool. Um, more like he's one of the major Bollywood composer guys. Oh, oh, okay. So yeah. like, like, like a John Williams or or someone like that. You know, in that kind of realm, like he's very prolific. He's done just hundreds of scores. He's really well known. Like one cool. of the main guys. Okay, cool. Uh, one one thing about this movie, and probably actually the reason that I didn't see it up until now is because everyone talks about like, oh, his shitty life in the slums and all that stuff, and I always think it's. I always think that when people describe it like that, that they're talking like another Schindler's List. It, yeah, I mean, it it plays like the stuff that happens is so bleak and brutal, but mm-hmm. it it's it's played with that train spotting lightness. It's got that energy to it that sort of uh, keeps it from being too poverty porny, which yeah. you know it it has been accused of being, and I guess also it, it, just the issue with Danny Boyle being a British filmmaker and yeah. India being literally a former British colony and all of the, yeah. the slums. If, you know, I, I, I see the politics there. there uh, yeah. I wasn't thinking about that when I watched the movie, but I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> and th- that's kind of what happened with the backlash to this movie that, you know, everybody loved it. It was a total phenomenon. I remember seeing in theater, the energy was so good. Uh, that final dance sequence, everybody left the theater feeling great. And oh, it, it, yeah, it just so swept. Good. It swept every award. Uh, and then it came out and everybody's like, I don't know, was that all that good? <laughs> everybody started to question, like, were, were we kind of swept up in the moment? Is that maybe bad politically? Uh, but, you know, I, th- I still think it's a really good movie. I, I, I do see flaws in it, but it's a good time. It's very interesting. Yeah, well. 
it's because it was because I had seen Train Spotting and knew it was Danny Boyle that I decided to finally watch it. I, hmm. I might not have ever done so otherwise. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. Yeah. And it's weird because it's just such a widely seen movie, probably the most widely seen movie with subtitles. I, I would have, have to expect. I would say that's probably true. It's about half the movie is subtitled, though. It's not fully subtitled. True. It's just that it, this is a movie that I could see people in the Midwest watching a lot of, like just Midwest moms uh, getting <sighs> into this one. And I don't feel like subtitled movies have much of a chance most of the time. That's that's very fair and true. This may I, have been the first ever movie with subtitles to win Best Picture. I'm not sure about that, but it could be. Wasn't Crouching Tiger at least nominated? Mm, I don't recall. Maybe. Now. I mean, I, I know it got nominations. I don't know if it was nominated for Best Picture, but it didn't win. Mm. That was 2000. And I believe that was the year. Was it Moulin Rouge one? Or no, Beautiful Mind. Beautiful mind. Okay, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been into the Oscars since the 90s. Uh, I'm uh, totally lame. <laughs> I, I was into them for about a brief period of about five to seven years when you and I used to watch them together. And then totally. Oh, yeah, again, the no. Happened and... Right. I haven't kept up. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of yeah. us have. Yeah, I, I don't even know what happened at this year's Oscars. No, not really. I didn't follow it at all. I was doing something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was probably just playing games. I was most likely watching a movie. <laughs> Maybe a several. Yeah, most likely. It's a Sunday. It's probably several. <laughs> so how do you remember when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was huge around Absolutely. Here? I watched it when it first came out. So did I. I, I used to love it until... It was true cultural monolith. It felt like one of the last shows that was consensus television. Yeah. Along with yeah. Survivor. Survivor that, was the other right one. Right at the time. Yeah. And 24, kind of. I never saw 24. Jack Bauer, Special Agent CTU. That's, that's Kiefer, right? Kiefer Sutherland. It was an interesting show. I mean, one of the big things that people kept questioning is like, when does he go to the bathroom? Because you're literally watching him for 24 hours and he never does. <laughs> Keeper Sutherland learned how to hold it in <laughs> I guess so I mean it's a high octane minute to minute show Because it was real time TV Which was interesting Yeah that's right I I don't know I why I never it. watched it uh, But I, yeah It was, it was alright It got increasingly ridiculous His daughter was a very absurd character Who existed only to get into <laughs> Stupid situations Where she would be captured by someone <laughs> oh like, like the taken daughter even worse because there's i like even like multiple seasons in there's a part where like i i think she runs away from a guy who's trying or no she's been kidnapped she's been totally abducted and she gets away and she runs and she gets into a guy's car and the guy who gives her a ride to escape from that attempts to rape her so she runs away from him and she's in a forest and i think she starts getting stalked by a panther it's just like <laughs> so absurd it was around this the time i stopped watching but it went on for some some years afterward you know i stopped watching uh the millionaire show the first time somebody won the million dollars i was like okay mm. I, now i know it can be done i think that's probably around the time 
it started to fade. A couple people won, and uh, like by the time this movie came out, it was already sort of a thing of the past for North America. Mm-hmm. Still gigantic in India, however. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like they actually, tried to get the host, like the actual host, to play the host on this, but he turned it down because you know he was making better money and doing his own thing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting that it kind of faded when somebody won and like when the first person won and the host character. who So I guess he's fictional then. Yeah, he's uh, it's it's played by uh, Anil Kapoor, who's a pretty excellent Indian actor. He's a pretty major guy. OK, yeah. Yeah, he he seems to want. Well, he doesn't seem to. He does want to prevent Jamal from winning. Completely. Well, it's it's totally class warfare. Mm-hmm. He, he he is a lot more antagonistic than Regis ever was. A lot like, oh, you're you're the one calling me up in the middle of the night with offers to ch- upgrade my wireless service. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chaiwala. He's Chaiwala. like deliberately oh. antagonistic to him the whole time. And Regis was sort of antagonistic, but kind of that it, it's this guy does it, too. But it's that friendly uh, friendly antagonism regis has a friendly face this guy looks and acts like an asshole he's an action movie guy like in Uh, india in the bollywood sphere he's a major action star uh notably he was a a major character in season eight of 24 (laughs) no kidding (laughs) (laughs) so uh so this movie is basically three timelines that we're watching all at once. We've got the long one, which is of his past. Uh, we're also watching him on the game show concurrently with him being brutally interrogated by cops as if he were a war criminal. Yeah. And apparently it's much worse in the book. You were saying, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's my understanding. I don't know to what degree. I have a copy of it. Uh, I know my mom's read it. <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh, like apparently i i think he is sexually assaulted by the cop around the beginning point where where we enter the film which is oh, you know he's geez. being tortured when we are introduced to him <laughs> the first scene <laughs> the first scene of the movie is actually uh well first we have our title card which is jamal malik is one question away from 20 million rubies how from winning 20 million rupees how did he do it a he cheated b he's lucky c he's a genius <laughs> or d it is written it is written it, yep. it feels and, like something that should the, it, it's weird it feels like it's the trailer in the movie kind of you know it does mm. <laughs> in a world well i maybe that's one of the big strengths of danny boyle as a filmmaker is he brings a trailer energy to his filmmaking. Oh, you know what? Yeah. I mean, you could sell this movie just on the the train montage. Oh, completely. Just, just using it, that as your trailer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Why amazing. Why is it called Slumdog Millionaire? Who cares? Trains. Everyone's <laughs> like, got to see that. It looks yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and, that song is a big part of what sold it. You know, that and Jai Ho were both really huge in the marketing. Oh, oh, the, the end song. 
Yeah, Jaiho was huge. I think that's the one that got the Oscar that year for best song. Oh, cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that sequence. So good. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about it uh, eventually. We'll get there. But as so- yeah, as soon as the title card fades, we've got him like getting the shit kicked out of him. And I didn't realize it was a cop doing it at first. Oh, yeah. it's, just, it's just this fat dude with like a with like a white tank top just like who are you what is your name punch 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 dunkin toilet uh the whole this, nine yards this is another uh really great indian actor like a, a major uh superstar in india who's not even remotely well known enough uh in in the west uh Irfan khan oh as, as the fat cop as the police inspector so i i think the I the I think the uh, this would be uh, Sarub Shukla, who I'm not really familiar with. Okay. But uh, the, most of these guys, like they are all actual fairly major stars in India. But Irfan Khan is like one of those mega star guys. Oh, all right. So yeah, I guess yeah, the police inspector. So he'd be this guy's boss. Right. Yeah. The the more reasonable guy, the the guy we spend some time with, the guy who has a really haunted face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more reasonable as in slightly well, he's willing to listen he'll he'll have a conversation <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean they're true. both still gonna torture that's just part of the job that's how you do it yep as he's being tortured we are intercut with a dude spreading money like like you know spreading dollar bills all over this bathtub that's filled with water mm-hmm. no idea what's up with that we're not going to find that out until the very end Mm. When the inspector cop comes, he's the one who orders the uh, raising the bar for torture. He's the one who's like, all right, hook him up to a car battery and that'll make oh, yeah. him talk. Yeah, yeah. Torture is so, what you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is this is the thing. Uh, they they don't have uh, they don't have to fill out their T-104s. They can just do whatever they want. Yeah, I think there there is even a thing where they wanted to make sure that they were like they gave the script. And, and like they had a script okay, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Seems pretty legit. <laughs> yep, that's that's funny. And he gets more mad at the cop because the cop used too much electricity and knocked him out. And he's like, hey, you fucking right. idiot! How Amnesty International questions. Yeah, he's an, uh, unconscious. Amnesty International is going to come here and breathe, and the mayor is going to be breathing down my throat. <laughs> I mean. It, it It is a, a dangerous game to play with someone who is currently on television. Like, yeah, his episode is is active and people are excited about it. Yeah, I, I actually didn't realize. I thought that this was a flashback at first because they hadn't even started asking him about the show yet. They were just asking him his name and torturing him. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought this was just another thing about his shitty, shitty life that he had to deal with. I didn't realize this was now. Yeah, it, it's the modern, like, it, it is the current. It's what he's uh, going to be flashing back from. Yeah, yeah, it's the show is the flashback, too. Well, most of it. Most uh, of up it. until, like, yeah, he's he's in the break between episodes. Yeah, yeah, he's got one more question left, and these guys are like, okay, well, you obviously cheated because you're from the, you're from the slums, and slum people aren't smart, therefore there's no way you can know all the answers to all these questions. Is their reasoning? Yeah, it, they're they're sure he cheated because it doesn't make sense for him to know this stuff, and it's sort of vaguely established that he 
really doesn't know some really obvious things like not right away but one of the sec i think it's the second question is one that anybody would tend to know and then yes. he actually struggled with it like he had to pull the audience mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's the second question right but it's outside his realm of experience whereas everything else you know it, it applies to him or <laughs> miraculously it was written obviously it was fake <laughs> it, it's really also very convenient that all the questions in the show are asked in chronological order as to when he experienced all this stuff makes it a lot easier to keep track of well it's very handy and it does make it more it was written and not just i mean you know <laughs> got lucky you happen to know a bunch of random things from uh, a wealth of terrible experiences i do feel like if called upon, there are other terrible experiences, terrible experiences he's had that he could draw upon for other information. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like the story of why he knows why his sofa is called a Chesterfield. Let's not go into that one. Chesterfield uh, would be, I, I, again, a former British colony, so they have a oh. lot of oh, British. Fuck. I was just making shit up. Oh, my God. And you're even right. yeah i'm sure that's something horrible then it'll just be the the standard uh (laughs) anyway so the the fat cop actually is like hey well did did either of us ever consider that he just knew the answers and the guy's like what the no absolutely not there's no way and jamal wakes up he's like yeah i knew the answers i i knew i will carefully walk you through my entire self history so that you can understand how I knew the answers. How about that? <laughs> Which is exactly what this movie is. He's That's got the hook. A, yep. He's got a VHS tape and the cops like, okay, how did you know this one? And our first question is who was the star of the 1973 hit film Zanjir? Amitabh Bachchan. Amitabh. Amitabh. So we have, First, a cool montage of them playing cricket on an airport runway and getting chased by the cops. Rad. Yep. Rad I would definitely say that this first part of the movie up to the big train sequence is the best sequence of the movie. Like, it's where the movie is at its strongest. I I agree. I do like the other stuff, but these, these kids nail it. The kid actors are amazing. They're very impressive. And it does, I, I guess that's part of the problem, is that the teen actors don't capture the same energy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the teen actors are good, but... They're fine, but not as good. Mm-hmm. They don't have the carefree realism of the children. Well, they also wouldn't be all that carefree at that point, though. Well, no, but, you know, neither are the children. They're going through some terrible shit. Literal yeah, shit. <laughs> literal shit yeah they're like doing this whole thing where they're running from the cops uh on rooftops and stuff and this cool like pop or rap song or whatever is playing and just as the cops about to catch up their mom catches them and <laughs> and scares the cop away so that she can give them a walloping yeah mom's got them is like okay no they're taken care of <laughs> i don't need to worry about this I think it's part that and part like, fuck, I can't mess with the mom. She'll kick my ass. Maybe. Hey, you, you don't mess with the mom. Mm-hmm. And the mom sends them right to school where 
where the uh, the oh my god, this schoolroom. It's Rough. like this so crowded. Foot by I don't like foot. it. I I can't. No, but, too much. Wouldn't. But they had to. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's extremely crowded, and they're being taught the Three Musketeers. But uh, <laughs> Jamal is not a good student. No, he's not. They showed up late. It's like, and what are the names of the Three Musketeers? Say it, Athos. Bunk. Bashes him with a book. Athos. Bash. Athos. And I was sure that that was going to be like one of the main questions. It's like, yeah, I knew this one because the teacher literally beat it into me. Well, you you would think, of course, you know, it it is a setup for the final question being the third musketeer. And he never learned it because he remembers the other two. Those two were literally beat into him, uh, Athos and Porthos. And they all talked about it all the time because they called each other that. But he never learned the third names because they didn't hang out with her enough. They they excluded her. Yeah. And. I guess they didn't get a chance to go back to school because uh, all that other shit happens later on. Yeah. No, he he sort of had a very chaotic upbringing. And why would he go back after why, his well, mom was gone? Why? Well, why slash how? Well, yeah, I guess. Like the school or. was in the community that got raided. Well, who knows? I, I don't know if uh, the school would have an issue. It's It's not really that the community got raided. It is just riots. Yeah. This was a real thing, and it's totally fucking nuts. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, We're going to get to that, but we're not there yet. We have a whimsical, fun question to answer. Well, fun-ish. Disgusting. It's a very Danny Boyle sequence. It's toilet sequence. It's also a very, ha-ha, this is a funny story. Kids will be kids. But also, how wow, the place that they lived in was shit. it's, It's very intense. Like, it's so gross that it's funny how light it plays, much like the worst toilet in Scotland. You know, this is the worst <laughs> toilet in India. It's just a, a fucking shack with a hole over a shit river. Yeah, yeah. So these toilets, they're at, like, the end of these bridges. It looks like a pier. It's over a lake, but with all the fog obscuring everything at the distance, it seriously looks like these are the toilets at the end of the world. Yeah. It's the Cursed Lands. This is a place like you end up in in Lord of the Rings where fucking Wraith comes out of the shithole and eats you. Simba, that is the whatever it is. You must never go there. Yeah, it it has that sort of energy and look to it. And he's selling tickets to it. Or rather, his his older brother, Salim, is. He's he's got a shy one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's hustling. But uh, Jamal, unfortunately, is in the crapper you know, doing what you do when he's got a customer. And Salim's like, come on, man. (laughs) Paying customer, get out of there. And uh, the customer's just like, fine, give me my money back. I'll go to the next one. And Salim is pissed. Salim is kind of a psychotic asshole, honestly, for most of the movie. For most of the movie, (laughs) Salim is the main villain. He's really bad. Like there's a couple times where he does the right thing. But then he usually immediately follows it up by doing something horrible. So Amitab, Amitab shows up. Yep, Amitab shows up in his helicopter. His private and, helicopter. Yep, and uh, and Jamal wants his autograph so bad, but Salim, little shit, locks him in the outhouse. So Amitab Bakchan 
uh, also just a huge major, like top Indian star. Uh, he was one of the hosts of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in India. <laughs> cool, cool. And Anil Kapoor, who plays the host, uh, was a guest on the show and won 5 million rupees uh, with Amitabh as the host. Oh, interesting. That's... <laughs> Doing like a celebrity uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I guess. Cool. Right on. <laughs> yep. You know, Amitabh is Jabal's hero, so he's got to get out of this outhouse and get his autograph. He has to do it, so there's only one way to do it. Oh, yeah. He just fucking dives right in. He, he doesn't dives. hesitate for a second. He just looks. Well, he's like, okay. He he hesitates. He, he takes his Amitabh picture out, and he holds it over his head so it doesn't land in the shit. But he's fully prepared for himself to be submerged. Yeah, which is exactly what happens and he comes out covered head to toe in shit (laughs) running to the helicopter running like pushing past everyone getting shit all over him just you you see just him leaving shit prints on people as he pushes past them (laughs) like oh no yeah and he gets to amitab who who signs the autograph and Salim is just looking at him horrified. Right. But I, I do like that. There's Amitabh just, you know, signs it, you know, no comment. Like, <laughs> Doesn't All right. <laughs> whatever. Just another day around the way. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's how he do the answer to the first question. Of course, it's Amitabh. And that's not like, that's really just establishing his background because he knew who Amitabh was because yeah, everybody he, he knows who he was. He saw his films and he had an autographed picture of him that was uh, sold cruelly by his brother. Oh, yeah, right. His brother took the fucking autographed picture and sold it to a pawn shop for coins. Yeah, immediately. Instantly, yeah. yeah. He's like, hey, he gave me a good deal for it, man. I w- wasn't doing this because I was jealous of you or nothing. And like, I literally... <laughs> waited was submerged in shit for this yeah yeah so yeah we've established that jamal will go the distance to get <laughs> what he needs and salim is an asshole yeah salim is very unsupportive and just cruel like actively sort of evil mm-hmm. the, the sort of evil that only a child can be i guess yeah yeah he yeah, I agree. He kind of reminds me a little bit of, oh, you know, I hate this movie, but Macaulay Culkin and The Good Son. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I kind of love that movie, but yeah, it's it's trash. It's, it's, it's <laughs> not good. If I let you go, do you think you could fly? Great. <laughs> I mean, etched forever in my mind, that was a real advertising campaign. I must have seen that trailer on TV 30 million times in my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the cops aren't, aren't aren't too baffled about him knowing the answer to this one. He's yeah. like, hey, everyone knows this shit. This one didn't take a genius. And the right. fat cop's like, yeah, the first. Man. The first question in who wants to be a millionaire is always a softball. Usually the first two or three. Yeah, usually they'll have like even they'll even put one or two funny answers that are just supposed to make you laugh because they're so wrong. I would love to watch. I I loved watching for those. Yes, those are fun. Johnny Revolver. I really loved when people would pick the funny answer and get it wrong. (laughs) 
yeah, well, most famously, the that elephants weigh more than the moon. <laughs> yeah, which of these items weighs the most? And the lady picked elephants, and one of the others was the moon. I forgot about Legendary. that. <laughs> Are you sure it's not B, the moon? Are you nope. sure? Yeah, classic. Uh, uh, yeah. But yeah, he gets to take a little dig at the fat cop because the fat cop's like, oh, I knew it. And Jamal's like, see, I told you, you don't have to be a genius. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, by the way, uh, Dev Patel as Jamal, so good. Oh, he's great. Like um, both the, the youngest child version and Dev Patel as the adult version are spectacular. But yeah, Dev Patel, this is where he sort of breaks out. Oh, so this is where... Okay. I wasn't sure if he'd done anything before this, really. He was on the TV series Skins, a BBC show, which I've, I'm not really familiar with. It had a pretty popular American remake as well. Heard of it. Don't know anything about yeah, it. I, I, don't, I don't know it. But very popular. And that, that was where he started to... like. I, I think that was maybe his first thing. And then that's where he got noticed to do this. And then this was huge. Right. And then he became huge. Right. Yeah. No, he is a superstar. Like he mm-hmm. stars in movies, like big stuff. Yeah. yeah I, I, for some reason, I, it didn't click in until you mentioned it, that he was the new green knight. I guess I just forgot. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so the second question uh, <laughs> that he had to explain not knowing the answer to was <laughs> what is written below the crest on the flag of <laughs> India? I was like, how, how do you not know that? My four-year-old daughter knows that. <laughs> and it's like, well, like I mean, it should be in the direction for this one. Yeah, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at flags and studying that kind of stuff. I, I had too much other street stuff to do. I, he, was, he was living the Aladdin lifestyle. <laughs> oh, my God. He was totally Aladdin. <laughs> uh, he ends up asking the audience, and of course... The audience gets it right for him. Yeah. Like, I still okay. don't know what the answer was. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess that's another thing that makes this work, especially well in the West. <laughs> that <laughs> you, you, you're learning along with him a lot of this stuff. Yeah. The, the only ones that I actually knew the answer to were the, the ones that were placed higher in this version than they would have been in the American version because right. it's all Western based. Right, the gun one. I mean, that would be like a number three or four question in America. Or the ben Franklin. Oh yeah, the Benjamin that. Franklin one. I mean, come on, I know about that because of Weird Al and Puff Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that was that was an easy one. And it's like, well, how do you not know that? But you know this, and he and he counters with, well, like, hey, do you know how much this particular meal costs at this particular food stand on this street? He's like, oh, I do. (laughs) This is things I need to know. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know who stole the the constable's bike uh, outside of this parking lot last week? Wait, you know who did that? Everybody knows who did that. (laughs) Yes. It's like what you know has this is just like trivia stuff. What you has no reflection on how smart you are. And that's what he's trying to point out here. These cops are just like, no, mm -mm, it's all about class. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is a thing of just uh, different spheres of knowledge that you, you come to knowledge from different places. But it's 
that's sort of also their argument is that he comes from a different sphere of knowledge. So him knowing all this stuff doesn't make sense. And he is kind of gradually acknowledging like, okay, some of this other stuff that I don't know, I, I, I do have to explain that because yes, it doesn't make sense that I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The third one that they gave him shit for knowing when really he probably, they probably should have been like, okay, we understand why you know this is, what is God Rama holding in his right hand? Right now, this is a very intense scene. One of the more crazy ones. So this is the Mumbai, or the, uh, I guess there was yep. the Bombay, Bombay riots. This is before it was renamed to Mumbai, uh, which were, I think, 1963 and 64, something like that. So that the, couldn't or no, have been because no, that's much too early. No, you said it was 90. One or 92. Yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, 92 to 93, December 92 to January 93 with 900 deaths. Oh, my uh, God. Predominantly Muslims. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a, a kind of a, a thing where there there is just escalating tensions between Hindu and Muslim factions. And just uh, what happened is here. They fucking ran through the slums with bats. Yeah, yeah. It, it starts out like innocently enough just like the last story of them like playing in a pool while the mom's doing laundry and yeah it's poverty and they're in shit water but they're having fun and it's whimsical and oh fuck race war yeah and uh, they just come through with bats mom gets hit and she is face down in the pool and she's gone like immediate Um, yeah they're running through the streets screaming People are throwing Molotovs, like lighting a dude on fire. It's, it's total fucking chaos. It just out of nowhere, just absolute uh, mayhem. And it, it it does sort of reflect what their lives are like. Just that absolute mayhem can come around at any corner at any time because of the instability of living in these slums. Mm-hmm. They they go to the police and they're like, police, police, cops. There's a literal riot happening just across the street there and the cops like we don't care it's not that we don't believe you i mean we can see the guy on fire running around it's just we don't care yeah you're we're here for the rich people we're not here to protect these uh extremely poor people you don't pay anything to us (laughs) yeah basically so you know something that's happened in the slums is like well you know happens in the slums stays in the slums i guess I guess until it doesn't, and then it's got to be exterminated. But that's well, that doesn't happen here. No, that's that's a riot well, in a I, different way. Those are the ones that the cops do get involved in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess they are trying to exterminate somebody trying to rise out of the slums. Yeah. I guess that's what the whole movie's about. Basically, yeah. But one thing that, ha- well, two important things that happen during the riots is one they. In a blankety-miss-it scene, they go by, they go around this corner, and there's this, like, little girl hiding in a shadow. She's going to become super important. Latika. Uh, Latika, I, I like she's her. So oh, she's great. Most uh, consistent uh, through the three performances, too. Yes, yes, I, I think I agree with that, yeah. yeah. The other thing is <laughs> they round a corner, and they see this um, weird blue child, and I couldn't tell if this was... What if this was supposed to be a dream or if he was dressed like this for a festival or what? But he's dressed as the god Rama. And that's how Jamal knows that he's got a bow and arrow in his hand. 
Right, because he sees it. So he, I, I presume it has something vaguely to do with the riot or something, because, you know, it, it is a Hindu symbol, and this is specifically a Hindu riot against Muslims. Mm-hmm. So it, it could be related, like how you see children trotted out for political theater on the sides of uh, big oh. political things, right? Like yeah. a, a protest at an abortion clinic. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Like that's that's always kind of been my impression of what's going on there, but it is just this weird casually surreal moment that feels unreal and dreamlike, but it obviously is real because it's why he knows it. It's totally key. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It felt like the ceiling baby at first. Sure. And again, it reinforces the it was written that just such a strange magical thing happened. Uh, which just is so slim and bizarre. And it's it's why he knows something that's very much outside of his sphere of knowledge as a Muslim, that why do you know this thing about Hindu religion? Oh, yeah. And his answer, of course, isn't, isn't yeah, everybody knows this shit about the Hindu religion. It's, I wish I didn't know this answer, because if it weren't for Rama, or, yeah, Rama and Allah, I would still have a mother. Right. And and so that's I, that's also sort of another point that he's making is that this religion stuff is also of no interest to him. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, it's just kind of what he was born into, and it is not what he does. It's not how he lives. Yeah, it, it's something that happens to him rather something rather than something that he does. Right. So we cut to the game, and we're going to a commercial break, which conveniently, I, man, I love well-placed intermissions and commercial breaks even though this isn't really an intermission i just love that shit Mm. i love knowing when i can just safely pause to go to the bathroom and prem is antagonizing him even off stage at this point he's like oh you got lucky huh well you're not gonna get this next one right and is it is this the bathroom break part Uh, no no, that's later that's That's quite a bit later that's much that's a bigger question that's like the 16 yeah that's this no that's the second last one yeah. Because that's the one that leads to uh, him going to jail. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, this is just him just taunting him, like, fuck you, you little lowborn shit, or whatever. Right, yeah, it's it's totally him playing cast. Uh, it, it's, it, it, there is a very rigid caste system still in mm-hmm. India. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it does make upward mobility really impossible, but that's also what makes who wants to be a millionaire so especially alluring there because it is a real life changer and it has like the potential to change all sorts of people's lives instantly in a way that it isn't quite the same in america yeah yeah like that's even one of the characters says like why do everyone love the show so much well it's a it's a chance to escape it's an incredible fantasy. It, it's a just this like again the pennies from heaven thing and the Bollywood v. Great Depression thing. Mm-hmm. So they have the children, uh, young Jamal and Salim, have fled the riot and are taking shelter in a shipping container in just this torrential, horrible rain downpour. And the poor little girl is just like standing outside a distance away. And like Salim's like, no, she can't come in. There's literally enough room. But I say there isn't enough room. Yeah, he just doesn't want her to because he is uh, an asshole. 
it, it, there's no reason other than he just doesn't want to. Yeah, it's uh, like, no, I'm I'm the head of the family now. I'm the boss, and I say no. And for Jamal's the strict like, purpose of being cruel. Yes, yes. Uh, there does not seem to be a practical reason to exclude this girl at all. No. But yeah, Jamal's like, no way, we're the three musketeers. Athos, Porthos, and... The third one. The third one. And, and that's interesting because that they only could name two musketeers because to Selim, while he doesn't give a fuck about the girl he is loyal to jamal more or less at, at this oh, yeah. point he still is so like to him there are only two musketeers true true and I, I i like i am not terribly familiar with the original three musketeers book i've never read it i've seen several movie adaptations <laughs> i think the third musketeer maybe comes in a little bit later or Maybe I'm misremembering, and most of the book is like a fourth musketeer trying to get in, D'Artagnan. I think that's what it... I don't honestly recall. I mean, I never knew that well to begin with. I should know, because I've definitely seen enough versions of it, but... Yeah. Something like that. I think there's three standard ones, and then there's... uh, the, The story is kind of from the point of view of a fourth guy who wants to join the three. Right? Okay. Something like that? That sounds right. D'Artagnan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see, that's how I knew the answer. That's how I knew the answer to the question, because I didn't know the name of the third musketeer either. I just knew that it, the other three were characters who weren't musketeers. Oh, see, I I, I don't know. I, I know these names from various versions. I think there's also a Stephen King book where he uses the names for little gnomes who take your soul away (laughs) i don't know it's it's a weird one called insomnia anyway i know about it because of a ninja turtles episode where one of them gets hit on the head and thinks he's the three musketeers and they call shredder cardinal richelieu so it's like oh richelieu must be the bad guy right yeah one of them was (laughs) d'artagnan yeah (laughs) yeah so Eventually, Jamal calls her over, just completely disregarding what his brother says. Well, like, yeah, whatever. He waits for Selim to pretend to fall asleep. Yeah. And Turns then Selim does allow it after he even like he is pretending to sleep. Yeah. Well, Jamal tries to sleep, too, but he's awakened by nightmares of the horrific violence he just suffered. Right. And I feel that's probably why Selim's not sleeping to begin with. Yeah. And, and why he, he eventually caves. Well, he, he he caves in as much as he pretends to not wake up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, he never he never caves on Latika. He no never until like the very, very last minute does is not on Team Latika. Yeah. It, well, he's he's exclusively on Team Salim. He's not really on uh, Team anyone else, uh, including Jamal. Yeah, not not so much. Not so much. Like there, there is the one time he saves him from Maman, which is where we're going to be heading next. Yeah, the, it's time for the next question. Which India poet wrote uh, Darshan Do? Oh God, Gansham. I, I'm sure I ruined it. I, I don't know, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- this is a very well-known song, and I think it's Maman's favorite song, right? It is Maman's favorite song. Now, Maman, so this is oh, this is a very intense sequence, and my understanding is this is the main thing that survives from the original book because most of the questions are all different. And oh, okay. 
most of the experiences as such are also different. <laughs> right. The, apparently the book was just too intense for the train spotting esque uh, way they wanted to do this. But this is a part that was in it and seems pretty true to the nature of the slums. Just uh, a Fagin-like slumlord who takes in all sorts of beggar children, but then, you know, disfigures them so they'll make more money. Yeah, he uh, he comes in as the kids are scrounging in the junkyard or just outside. I guess it's not even specifically a junkyard. It's It's really unclear the slums it is a slum yeah. <laughs> it's all slum yeah he, he drives he drives up in his uh orphanage bus that's like all beat up and i'm like oh no this isn't gonna be this is gonna be sinister isn't it you know it's gonna be sinister even though i do feel like in this sort of area if it were an actual orphanage bus it's probably gonna be pretty run down because I mean, look at the state of things. Yeah, right. (laughs) True, true. That's not, you know, that's not what made me think it's sinister. The guy looking like Michael Jackson. Uh, Yeah, uh, the the guy who plays him is excellent and and really terrifying. Mm -hmm, Because he's like, he's always so soft-spoken. And I I don't know if it's intentional or not, but he does look like latter-day Michael Jackson a little bit. Yeah, they, they definitely have him styled in an unusual way. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything else this guy's in. Uh, Ancor Vical. Uh, he was also, he, he played a terrorist on 24. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I probably saw that. I watched. Oh, no. He played it on the Indian Hindi language version of it. Oh. Wow. Okay. Okay. That's rad. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um. He runs an orphanage and he appears to look after the kids really well, but he gives them lots of food. I mean, they are making money for him. So he's, you know, getting them, giving them some of their share back. But it's sort of, it's basically grooming. Oh, that is exactly what he's doing. And it seems like he's giving them an education. It seems like he's giving them. No, he is creating his army. Right. And like th- this is a Fagin thing. I don't know if you're familiar with Dickens, Charles Dickens. Uh, uh, I know the idea. I haven't read the story, but I I know the idea. He he's a dude who gets the pickpocket gang of kids. Right. Yeah. So th- this guy is much like that, but sort of on an industrialized scale, where you know he has a pipeline of kids coming in. He's choosing the best ones. He has audition sequences. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he he sells. Some of the kids, like some of the girls, or, you of know. Of course, yeah. yeah. Which is what ultimately, I believe, happens with Latika. Mm-hmm. But you know, at first he seems like a real sweet dude. He's feeding them, keeping them fed, teaching them how to sing, uh, uh, slapping them around if they fuck up on purpose, but you know. Well, yeah. Uh, and Jamal really, he, he hits it off. He's so charming. The The kid version of him is so winning and adorable. And him oh. doing... Him doing the song performance, just, it's its so cute. <laughs> when him and Latika are sitting on the on the porch and, like, he says, will you dance with me? And he does his, like, adorable little kid dance. It's very cute, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the, the main thrust of this one is this is where Salim, first he has a temper tantrum over, I don't remember, because he didn't sing good enough and... 
they weren't happy with him. So he tries to fight the huge giant mountain man that's this guy's bodyguard. And Maman's like, okay, I think you found your new dog. He basically becomes their enforcer. He He's yeah. sort of their tough guy because they know he's not going to be able to sing. He's not going to be a successful beggar. He has too much attitude. He's got to be uh, someone who enforces on the other kids. Sort of a, a, a situation you have in any sort of uh, crooked <laughs> uh, place where children are taken care of. Like all of those uh, Elon schools and stuff. They they have this sort of structure. You You find the kids who can be the bullies to the other kids, and you cultivate that in them. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what he's doing here. Like, he's grooming Salim to become one of his one of his soldiers, one of his enforcers. Yeah. So he is the first one to see behind the curtain what the real plan is, which, you know, as I mentioned, yeah. he, he's disfiguring them. And there's this really adorable kid. I think it's Arvind. Arvind, yeah, he he's the best singer out of all of them. So they're like, okay, well, you come with me now. Time for you to graduate, young man. Oh, yay! Um, and Salim has to watch while he uh, he gags Arvind with this uh, chloroform or whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, the dude, this like old prospector-looking guy with a beard. Uh, uses a spoon and you don't really see what he does, but he blinds the it. guy. You yeah, hear it sizzle. Hear it. He he puts a spoon in his eyes, basically. He burns his eyes out. Yeah. Melts and, them. Yeah. And... Very horrible. And Salim throws up and runs off. Well, no, he doesn't run off right away. No, he doesn't run off. He um, Maman comes up to him and is like, okay, well, now that that's done, go get Jamal. Yeah. And Salim's like, uh... Okay. And Maman's like, hey, you have to make a decision. Do you want to be a slum dog the rest of your life, or do you want to be a mad? Like me. Yeah, like me. Uh, you have to make a decision. And Salim. To his credit, like this is the one time he the makes right, the right choice. Yeah, he makes the right choice. He does bring uh, Jamal in. Doesn't tell him what's going on, but he does, as Jamal's singing. Oh. <laughs> Jamal tries to extort Maman first. Oh, yeah. He's like, well, I mean, if I'm going to be singing professionally, how about a tip before I sing this one now? He's like, oh. Professional, what can you do? And Maman is like, oh, you are going to be good at this. (laughs) And also, it's like, yeah, I mean, if I don't really want to pay him, I can just take it from him when he's unconscious in a minute. So So uh, uh, Salim intervenes at the last moment. Yes, Salim intervenes. He takes the chemical that they used to bring to make the kids go unconscious and just spreads it all over the bodyguard guy's face, like burning him horribly. And they escape. Uh, Jamal takes Latika, and this is where they run to the train. Right. And uh, again, Salim intentionally leaves Latika behind. Yeah, yeah. There's this whole thing like they're running to the train. Jamal and Salim get up. Uh, Jamal gets to safety. Salim reaches his hand out and Latika grabs it. And then he, yes, very clearly, intentionally lets go. Yeah, just pulls away to specifically leave her behind so uh, he didn't have to deal with her. Yeah. Or, and then, you know, to be a cruel dickhead. Well, you know, it's a bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. He's into all flavors. Mm-hmm. It's very surprising that he does make the choice to save his brother, considering how much uh, cruelty seems to be 
his first nature. Like it, it does seem like he would go really well within uh, the Maman organization. <laughs> well, he he does he still go down does. that road. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Uh, he just, you know, wasn't ready to see his brother murdered before his eyes yet. Yeah. Uh, later on, that might change. Right. So this is the fucking rad train sequence. The incredible yep. train montage. Yep. Fun, happy gunshot song. All I want to do is boom, 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 boom. As they're living on this train for an indeterminate amount of time, just hustling. So great. A uh, great use of this song. I do fucking love Paper Planes. I, I think uh, probably it's very overplayed now to a lot of people, but I love it. It's it's so much fun. More sound effects need to go in songs if they're well placed, that is. That album is really fun for that kind of stuff. There's a song Bird Flew on it where it has lots of like bird sounds in it. Oh, OK. Like just to, uh, all sorts of like clucking and you know, like, crowing and stuff. It's cool. Oh, and yes, that's how that's how Jamal knows who sung the song, because the song that they were all had to sing was by was the poet. song from the yeah. question. His yeah. favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the cop asks Jamal is like, hey, what happened to the blind girl? He's like, uh, I didn't find out for a really long time what what happened to her or no, they didn't blind her. They had other plans and I wouldn't find out for a super long time. Right. Yeah. But yeah, train montage. The train montage is amazing. Them just living as pirates on the train is really great. Uh, them running all sorts of scams. Uh, <laughs> yes. This breathless, energetic montage after this sort of deep sting horror moment of that poor child being blinded. Uh, it, it's it's such a big contrast and it's such a huge up. And I do feel like it is the peak of the movie. Yeah, yeah um, it's definitely... It's, Not to say that I dislike the rest of the movie, but it, it is definitely where it really hits its highest point. I think so. I think we needed that uh, that moment where we could breathe easily just for a bit. Where yeah. It's like, OK, maybe nothing horrible is going to happen to them right this moment. Yeah. And you see them grow up. This is sort of the transition point to the teen version. Though you still get a little bit of them running scams younger, right? Uh, no, they... With the, the Taj Mahal? Or I guess this is when... the teen version. Okay, that is when it hits them as the teen versions. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they fall yeah. off the train because <laughs> Salim is lowering Jamal on a rope so that he can steal, like, on the side of the train so he can steal some uh, non from one of the cars. Hell and yeah. The, and the dude just, like, starts punching him through the window and they both fall off the train. Yeah, and they tumble off in their teenagers and now it's the new... New actors. <laughs> yeah, they literally like wake up in the dust and like as the smoke clears, it's new actors. So my I, I like to pretend that they were just living on the train for five years. It could essentially be that they probably lived off of uh, scamming on the train for some time. Mm hmm. You know, why not? You know, it's, it, it, that is a good place for them to be. There's a lot of people on those trains all the time. And they're not going to recognize you because you're never going to see them again once they get off. Right. That's the big thing. It's a constantly changing population. That's that's a good place to be in this sort of situation, really. Another good place to be in this sort of situation is, in fact, the Taj Mahal. Right. So that that's where they end up and they sort of become 
rogue tour guides. <laughs> rogue tour guides. Uh, yeah, the Taj Mahal was a hotel built in 1595. They didn't have electricity yet, but uh, but they were going to. And then uh, and all these the first... <laughs> these British and German tourists are like. Well, it's not in the guidebook. <laughs> well, the guidebook was written by Indian beggars who idiots. don't know anything. Yeah. And they, they kind of fall backwards into it, too, because the German couple asks him to give them a tour. Because so they're just, just hanging like, out there, yeah. Yeah, they're just hanging out, you know, stealing shoes at first. Right. They're, well, they, they continue stealing shoes. Convenient place to steal shoes, because people take the shoes off and leave them. <laughs> yeah, I'd be... I would be scared to take my shoes off there because, you know, I not even if they get stolen, I just don't think I'd find them again. <laughs> Very unlikely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we we get a fun montage of them hustling in the Taj Mahal. It's cool. Uh, yeah, until it finally ends when they've got this American couple and they're taking them away from their car, away from this thing, and these other kids steal the tires when they get back. So the cop thinks it's them who stole the tires and starts beating the shit out of them, of course. Right. That's what you do. And Jamal says to the American tourist, is like, you want a taste of the real India? Well, this is it. Right. And, and the, the, the tourist, of course, is like, oh, I mean, here, you know, they, they pay off the cop. They give them some money. <laughs> and this, the, the cop's like, you know, they're running a scam. This is what these kids do. Yeah, but the the wife's like, well, son, if you want the taste of the real America, this is it. <laughs> gives her <laughs> gives him a hundred dollar bill, <laughs> free money. Yep. So um, this is yeah, this is the next question. Uh, who's on yep. the hundred dollar bill? He doesn't know it until he goes to give it to Arvind for, you know, all his troubles. Yeah, basically. Because um, Arvind knows. <laughs> yeah, Arvind knows. So. He ends up having a dream about Ladika. So he goes back against Salim's wishes. He goes back to the town where they grew up and he starts working at this restaurant. And Salim's like, man, why did you drag me here? We had this great thing going on, apparently. Now we have like real jobs. I I guess it's just a matter of like if you're living on the streets, if you have – you running like a full time scam lifestyle in a big tourist section. That's probably well, a flashier way to live than it is, you know, doing a nine to five. I mean, they make it look fun. They, that's the thing about this movie. It makes the hustling look fun. Well, it's much like the thing in train spotting with them doing their crimes to pay yeah. for their addictions. Yeah. And it makes me want to live on a train. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it kind of makes me want to watch uh, Wes Anderson's Darjeeling Limited, really. Oh, oh, yeah, I need to watch that again. I'm so good. Mm -hmm. Also Uh, him kind of playing with Bollywood and stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right, too. I forgot. I I remember so little of that movie, honestly. I've seen it many times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so... By, J- by day, Jamal works at the restaurant, and by night, he just wanders around asking around about Latika when he finally sees Arvind. and Singing blind in a tunnel. Yep, blind. Uh, his eyes are fucked. Yeah, they're destroyed. And uh, Jamal hands him the $100 bill, and he sniffs, and he's like, hey, American money, how much is this? <laughs> and he's like, uh, 100 bucks. 
Yeah. Like, no right. way. <laughs> if it's a hundred dollars, who's on the who's on the bill? I don't know. <laughs> this balding guy with long girly hair. He's an old man. Benjamin oh, Franklin. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. Hey, remember this. This is going to be a question for you on who wants to be a millionaire. And I mean, again, I, I know it because all about the yeah, Benjamins. Uh, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably every American just knows this. Yes, this is one that is like a much lower level question. <laughs> yeah. But really, like, hey, Arvin, do you know what happened to Latika? Dude, holy shit, let it go. Maman will remember you and he'll fucking kill you, dude. Yeah, just stop going after it. I mean, he she is still technically his property. He's got her, you know, in the biz. Yeah, and, and you know, he, he considers you his property still, too, so just remember that. Yeah, watch out for that. But, you know, if you if you feel like being suicidal, she goes by the name of Cherry, and you can find her in the red light district. Just ask for someone named Cherry in the red light district. It won't be hard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not a common name at all, probably. Oh, God. But it was written, so, you know. It was written, and he does end up finding her. Yeah, basically barging right, like him and Celine barging right into the room, only to find, oh shit, Maman's there too. Of course. Of course. It's like, hey, you guys came back. So, hey, now that you're mine and I'm actually really pissed off at you for escaping, and Celine pulls out a gun. Yeah, and rip fucking Maman. Yeah, rip Maman. He's like, Maman's like, hey, you know what? Actually, why don't we forget about this whole thing? <laughs> uh, let's let like, bygones be got bygones. Bam! <laughs> yeah, Salim's like, man, I thought you never forgot anything. Mm, yeah. This time I might. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Bye. Seems unlikely. Kaboom. Yeah, rip Maman and his henchmen. Yeah, and they, they take off with uh, Latika, and Salim gets a, gets a job with his rival. Yeah, uh, they they run to this hotel, this abandoned hotel, and they they recuperate there. And Jamal and Latika, they share like a sweet, tender, like kid, teen. Oh, I actually love you. I, you know, the I thought you were dead. I thought you forgot. Moment. Right. I never forgot. Yeah, and then of course it immediately gets grim again. Yeah, so Salim goes and he's like, hey, Javed, the super like Yakuza looking gangster type guy, I killed your rival. So let me be on your team. He's like, yeah, okay. You're yeah, Javed Khan. Yeah. Oh, he's a Khan too. Holy shit. Khan's a very, very common name well, in India. <laughs> yeah, but it's a powerful name. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, Salim, now high on himself, decides, hey, I did all this shit and saved all these people. I should have the girl. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to claim her. Uh, leave her with me. Go. Just just get out of here. Yeah, of course they fight. So Salim pulls a gun on Jamal and he's like, go, man. Don't think I won't put you bullet through your eyes this time. And, and Latika actually- just, yeah, Latika makes him. It's like, you know what, Jamal, you should leave because... Uh, we we both know Salim enough that he might. Yeah, this is this is too crazy. Uh, yeah. This is the I, only way we're going to defuse the situation is by like, letting it happen. Yeah, like you you have to go. And like yeah, so Salim sort of hits rock bottom, and now uh, we we sort of get to almost the present day. Like most of yeah. the the rest of the stuff is kind of just his day to day life in the present. 
Yeah, but for, well, oh, uh, right. This, this is the answer to a question of who invented the revolver. And Salim's like, I got a Colt 32 pointed at you. Right. Invented by Samuel Colt in the, but I wanted him to pick Johnny revolver. It just feels like it's too, too late in the game for a funny answer. It's crazy that there was one there. Yeah, Johnny revolver was very funny. But yeah. Yeah, obviously Samuel Colt. Yeah. So the next question is, Cambridge Circus is in which UK city? And remember our silly London montage from uh, Train Spotting? Yeah. Uh, let's do it again. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, thinking of the corny London montage in Train Spotting versus this movie and sort of the difference in tone is that this movie does sequences like that and it's not ironic. <laughs> it, it happens and it's totally sincere it's corny and sincere that's sort of the pivot that danny boyle does at this point in his career yeah because jamal is here he is the chaiwala he, yeah. he gets the tea for everybody but he's looking a call at all center. these in a call center yeah which they're uh, they're taking calls from america and pretending or no from from the uk and pretending UK, to be british edinburgh and all that yeah. stuff and he's looking at all the signs and like just imagining all these cool places it's it's a sign montage is what it is right because there there are signs above all of them for the sections of london that uh they're receiving calls <laughs> mm-hmm. or like, like the, the different areas in the uk because they're all in different spots so they can sort of have enough expertise in the area that they might be able to fool people that they're not calling a foreign nation for their yeah. tech support <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he gets stuck covering for one of the guys who needs to go watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and try to call and get in. He's like, right. you know, just occupy the seat. Um, if the guy comes, pretend you're upgrading somebody on a friends and family discount. You won't have to do anything. Right. And, and it's in get, the Piccadilly Circus section, I think. I think so. I'm not sure. Because that's sort of how he puts it together, because there's Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, and there's a there's a Cambridge or there's an Oxford Circus which is in London, so Cambridge Circus must also be in London. Because there's a thing about rowing competitions. I think yeah. that that's what they were dealing with that night. There was a rowing competition that people were trying to see and that they were trying to get tech support for. Mm-hmm. But the um, yeah, but the main thing that happens at the call center, aside from Jamal first learning about the Millionaire Show is uh he googles salim yeah well first he googles latica there's like twenty three thousand yeah. hits so he googles salim's full name and gets 15 hits right Not much easier to bad. locate and he ends up being so his salim ends up being the third one and is like oh wow holy shit you're alive listen uh right he had he feeds, to go he feeds them into the auto dialer and you know, he tries each of them like salim yeah. And it, each of them are not him. And then like, oh, shit, it's and and Salim recognizes him. Yeah. Recognizes his voice. Like, Jamal, is that you? Uh, listen, we had to go. Maman's men were coming. Whatever bullshit story. Who knows how much any of this is true. Mm-hmm. But he gives him a place, a time and a place to meet, which is on top of this uh, construction tower. And I love this bit because uh, because Jamal 
goes up to sleep and he tackles them and they both go flying off the tower. But it's a fake moment. Yeah. It's what he wanted to do. <laughs> but he does punch him out. Yeah. And he's like, okay, well, I know you won't forgive me for what for what I did, but like listen, I left a message at the restaurant for you to know where to find me. He's like, no, you fucking didn't. There was no message. You stole her away and bailed on us or bailed on me rather. But he has sort of turned around at this point, like not entirely. He's still devoted to a life of crime. It's just that he has kind of reflected on his past enough by this point that he's not a complete sociopath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's like, Hey, look at this, this, huge fucking industrial development that we're building here, this construction yard. That used to be our home, man. India is going to be the center of the world and I'm at the center of the center. Mm-hmm. Going to be a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> By working under this other guy who's actually a big deal. He'll well, give yeah. me a chance eventually. That's a pyramid scheme. Works. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Crime enterprises are pyramid schemes. That's kind of how they work. Yeah. So, so it's like, Wait, do you work for Javid, the big criminal mastermind guy? Javid yeah, Khan. Yeah, Javid Khan. Okay, well, where's Letika? And he's just like, what? Still? Holy you shit, still dude. still care about that? Come on. Oh, my God. Forget about her. She is long gone. She is nowhere. Just don't. But since, you know, he, he really wants Jamal to forgive him a little bit. Yeah. Like, well, okay. I mean, I... I could give you a little bit of information. Yeah, yeah. There's this, uh, yeah, he gives him, like, I can't remember what he gives him, but Jamal ends up following Salim to uh, Javed's palace right in the middle of this. Oh, I should mention the uh, construction uh, development montage of, like, just the slums basically being paved over all these huge buildings up where they used to be, but, like, they're still clearing away all the stuff, so... They've got these huge buildings, but they're not on concrete. They're just still on dirt piles. Yeah. It's crazy. It's wild. It's like a whole different world from what I'm used to. It is a very crazy area. Like, this is truly just a really wild space in India where it is a really harsh mix of the poorest and the richest. Like, just a line drawn down the middle. There's the worst slum and the biggest, richest area, like, rubbing shoulders. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which makes and, it a really great place for this kind of story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he follows him to Javid's mansion, and he just sees Letika on the balcony there, and he tries to sneak in by being like, hey, I'm the new cook. We're not <laughs> looking for a cook, we're looking for a dishwasher. Yeah, no, dishwasher, that's me. I just, you know. Sure, cook, I can do that. Dishwasher, yeah, I'm a dishwasher, Sure. Do whatever you need. Expecting an appliance, but come on in. Right. He he becomes sus- they they become suspicious of him pretty quickly, but he is able to quickly get in with her and it's like, hey, uh, you know, I I still love you and stuff. She's like, get and out of here! You're gonna be killed. Like, you're gonna get us both killed. You really don't understand what the fuck you're doing. Uh, just no, just. No, and Javid comes home and is like, oh shit, pretend you know how to cook. (laughs) And Javid turns on the cricket game, which is convenient because the next question is, which cricketer scored the most first-class centuries in history? And I don't even know enough about cricket to understand this question. 
Yeah, no, neither do I. Not really. I mean, I, I got, I know more about cricket than I've ever needed to, but uh, through just work stuff. But uh, it's, uh, he, this is one that he doesn't fully know the answer to, and he has to do the 50-50, right? That's correct, because he, the cricket game was going on in the background, but he is talking to Latika and trying to convince her to leave while also making what I what is apparently the world's worst sandwich. Well, it looks terrible. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, or or he's not thinking about it, at least. Or both. Yeah, a bit of both. But bit of both. Um, he made the world's worst sandwich and was asked to leave Javed's house. Yeah, he has to go. He's like, yeah. this is not good enough. You have to leave. So isn't this also the, the one that... Uh, Prem Kumar tries to feed him the wrong answer to? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, it is. So before he leaves, he says to Latika, like, every single day, I'm going to be waiting at this st- train station at 5 p.m. Victoria um, Terminus, which is where we have our end sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll be there just if you show up one day, or I'll always be there if you ever decide you want to get out of this life. Yeah. And... Javid, of course, hates the millionaire show because he's evil. And if you're evil, you have to hate the good show. He's like, why do you watch this show? Well, it's a chance to escape. Escape what? Don't you know I am a millionaire? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want to sleep with the millionaire. I want to be a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, uh, Also, he's fucking awful. He's gross. Yeah, he's a bad yeah. guy. He he does do a 50-50 because he doesn't know the answer, and now it's between B, Ricky Ponting, or D, Jack Hobbs. I mean, and, those both sound like real cricketer names. Could be yeah. either one. <laughs> and they go to a commercial break, and here's where Jamal is in the toilet stall, like, freaking out because he doesn't know the answer. Right. And, and Prem so, comes in. Yeah, and he, he writes it in steam on the window, or on, on yeah. the mirror, rather. After first delivering this speech like, oh, you could make history, a poor boy from the slums rising up to become a millionaire, only one other person has ever done that. Me. Yeah, and he doesn't and want I'm anyone else to. I'm my success, but I'm not yeah. going to say that out loud. Although, I mean, this is sort of a, a test of Jamal in terms of this is where it's skill rather than luck, because he knows how to read people. He has the experience with scum enough to know when he is being misled, when someone is trying to cheat him. He has all of this experience with Salim his whole life to know when someone is being a scumbag around him. Yep. So, yeah, he sees the answer and gets back on the show. And chooses the other one. (laughs) Yeah, he chooses the other one. He's like, D, Jack Hobbs, are you sure it isn't B, Ricky Ponting? Yeah, like, I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because it could be B. And Jamal's like, it could also be D. Final answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's always the classic Regis thing. Like, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. <laughs> but Regis just comes off as like a playful old man. This guy comes off as a scumbag. Well, this guy's definitely playing it sinister. Yeah. 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 No, he, he the actor is good. Like He's very good. Because he, he's just subtle enough that you're not sure if there's any malice between, behind his digs at first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he picks D, and Prem is just like, 
takes a moment to process it, which he's obviously hiding as being suspenseful. He's like, well, now he knows I lied to him and also fucking probably cheated. And then he's like, you're right. Yeah. And so this is where they have to break for next time after Well, they, they ask the next question, but then they got to break. No, they, they're about to ask the next question. And okay, the siren right. goes off. Yeah. It's like, Oh, what? we're out of time. We're going to have to do this tomorrow. Now, why don't you come with me into this alleyway for nothing sinister? We'd just like to ask you a couple questions. And he gets black bagged. I wonder if this happened to that guy on The Price is Right. <laughs> the guy oh. who, like, got the exact number of the showcase. And <laughs> you, you see Drew Carey reacting to it and going, right on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Barker would have just gone over and been like, boom, boom, the price is wrong, bitch. Yeah. Uh, I, like the, the the guy just had watched the show so much that he knew exactly <laughs> the perfect dollar amount. Like he had just done the math. But yeah, yeah. For, for a while, like they, they shut down the show and they had to talk to the judges and make sure that it was on the level. I don't think they went this far. <laughs> no, no. Like he, he, he black bagged him and then we get in and now we're caught up with all the torture. The torture. Right. The game the, show host sold him out to the torture cops. Of course. It, it, it just reminds me of that uh, Jeopardy bit where Alex Trebek has the goons. It's like, you said you knew the rules, Marge. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you owed, what was it, like $800? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but yeah, after, after hearing all this, the main cop is like, you know what? I don't think you did. I don't think you cheated. Yeah. I mean, it seems you, like he, he does know all the answers. We, we know how he knows them now. Yeah. And also you basically confessed to murder to get out of a fraud charge. And that doesn't make any sense unless this is how this happened. Right. So, yeah, he's like, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm telling you, man, I just answer questions when I get asked. Yeah. I, I knew the answers. That's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Like, okay, well, uh, all right. And so the next episode is going to go on. Although first we get sort of an interstitial where everyone's feeling the energy of this and we, we get him on the news. All of is gripped in Jamal fever right now as the, as the historic contestant, you know, reporter montage. Yeah. Everybody's watching. sees it. Yep. Which was Uh, the whole point. This is the only reason he's doing this. Yeah, that is the reason why he's on the show is so that she would see it. Yeah. Oh, I guess he we missed like before he got on the show, he did see her at the train station, but Celine came and they scarred her. her. Yeah. 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 They cut her face. Um, and Salim was one of the people who did it. So, you know, he's still sucks. not good. He's yep. still kind of an evil guy. But yep. here again, like he sees the. He sees uh, Jamal on the news and he feels bad about all the shit he did again. It's like, ah, I got to swing good again briefly. Yeah, the way he looks at Ludic, he's like, this guy's never going to fucking stop. Yeah. I'm just going to, I give up, basically. Yeah, it's like, all right, fine. You, ha- he belongs to you now. I don't even want him anymore. Yeah, Here, here's my phone and my car keys. Uh, don't lose either of them. Yeah. And this is the 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 bathtub full of money thing too. Yeah, he begins uh, setting up the bathtub full of money that we saw at the very beginning. Right. And now we are 
fully caught up to present day on all three timelines. For the final question. The final <laughs> question, which it, it had. It had it to had be so, the three musketeers thing. Yeah. <laughs> it had been so long, though, that I had forgotten that I predicted it would be. So when it came up, I was like, oh, of course. And yeah. the final question is, uh, who was the third musketeer? And it's like, it's like, huh. fuck he I, I love know this yeah, one. His him realizing is like, ah, I should, but I don't know that. You I know this I don't one. know it. <laughs> I don't. But he <laughs> has a phone number. Yeah, he does have his phone a friend lifeline left, and uh, so he's it's like, Salim's I'm gonna, number. It's Salim's number, the only number that he knows. Yeah. So he's like, I'm going to call a friend. And it just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. Meanwhile, uh, Latika has gotten out of her car because traffic jam because India and is watching the show on window TVs. Not hearing the phone. Not hearing then the she phone realized, like, she... oh, shit, I got to go get that. Yeah. So it's like this whole super tense moment where she's like pushing back through the crowd and the traffic and the phone's ringing and ringing and the producer is making the cut it motion. Yeah. And she gets like, it. She gets it. It's like, I'm guessing this isn't your brother. <laughs> it's like, hey, oh, my God, it's you. How are you? Wow. Uh, I'm safe. So. Uh, so, but yeah, I don't the know. Question. I never learned it. <laughs> I never learned. We never. None of us ever found out. He's like, he's like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't, I'm just glad you're safe, man. This was the whole point. That's all that mattered. Yep. And, and of course, it gets cut off. So it's like, OK, well. Guess I gotta make an answer. Um, fuck. Hey, Aramis, are you sure? No, but it's yeah, my final whatever. answer. Yeah, yeah sure. Who cares? But <laughs> most importantly, uh, Latika calling in Javed happens to see it because mm. you know it's this is a big cultural uh, thing that's going yeah. on, and he's like, wait a second. <laughs> so he goes on the warpath. Yeah, he goes. First, he goes to get Salim, who has been taking way too long in the bathroom. Yeah. And with his bathtub full of money, with his bathtub full of money. And Salim has uh, sat himself down in the bathtub full of money, shoots Javid as soon as he comes through the door and then gets turned into Swiss cheese. Yeah, the, the rest of his guys uh, blow him away. But, you know, he, he gets to die in his bathtub full of money. That's the way he wanted to go. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah. So Jamal and wins. He won. He's the millionaire. You're the millionaire. And it's got like all the triumphant music. At, like they use the triumphant millionaire music as uh, Latika makes her way to the train station where she knows Jamal will be waiting. And fuck yeah, here comes the Bollywood sequence. So great. The So Jai Ho plays. This is it, it, it's sort of a retrospective of the movie. You get the sequence. You get some of the kids doing the dancing, like all of the previous actors uh, yep. get to kind of like get brought in at different points of the dance. It's great. Mm -hmm. it, it's so good. It actually really reminded me of the uh, 2003 Zatoichi ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like even characters who like didn't get good endings in the movie could have a good ending in the dance. Yeah, Although I don't think to get together. You, It's sort of like a curtain call. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, like I said, seeing that in theater, everybody walked out in a great mood. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> The the second time I watched it, I was just high enough that it hit me just right that I started crying tears of happiness. 
It's so good. No yeah, joke. I was like still drying them off when we started recording. It's it's such a perfect end to the movie. It's got such a great energy to it. And yeah, it, like it, it really leaves you with the right mood coming out of it. Yeah, even though, you know, none of the systemic problems of the place that it came from got addressed, but it's not it doesn't matter. It's a destiny love story. True it's a fairy tale. Overall, it's a fairy yeah. tale. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Cinderella that he had to bust his ass for. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. Like I, I, I certainly see a lot of the criticisms of it, and I don't love it as much as I did the first time I saw it. But I think it's a movie that holds up better than people maybe uh, give it credit for. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's weird that uh, a British director is making a movie about. Uh, indian poverty that's kind of right and i mean to his to his credit danny boyle did a thing where like all of the child actors are actually from those slums and uh they all got college endowments as part of their roles so this move okay that's cool yeah i i think it didn't entirely work out for some of them because it's still endemic and yeah. things are are not good and i i think one of them is maybe in prison now or maybe dead oh. so things didn't necessarily go great but he tried you know it, it was a, a noble attempt so this movie actually reminds me a lot of but i think it's a much better movie than uh another academy award nominated film starring dev patel lion remember that one mm-hmm. yeah where he was like a kid who was from a poverty community got on the wrong train and just ended up on this wild adventure so far away from home that he couldn't remember where it was and then he gets adopted by british uh, uh foster parents yeah and yeah. like a totally a fine movie i agree this is a much better movie <laughs> this is way more fun and it's so weird to talk about fun with this subject matter it is wild that, that this one managed to be considerably more entertaining, despite also being considerably more grim overall. Yeah, like Lion had its dark moments, but oh, yeah. it had well, nothing and they, like Man on Fire. Right, and it it also is uh, a brother's story, too. Like, there's a real, like, uh, antagonistic brother relationship in that one also. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, um, no, uh, great movie. I love it. I love the music. Lo- I love everything, honestly. It's oh, so fantastic score. Yeah. The colors are always so vibrant. Everybody, like everybody, always wants to film poverty is brown and gray and Indian. And you got not. that, like the, the but the like the when he's covered in shit or the yeah. the brown the shit river. It's not like a dark brown. It's like a vibrant, bright yellowy brown. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that might make it worse, but it yeah, does, like it's, but it's colorful. They're, all it's of the so, colors really pop. <laughs> yeah, it's so colorful. Yeah, like really fun movie. Strong recommend. I mean, the Academy thinks so too. <laughs> but it, it's kind of interesting because it is one that doesn't have that much. Like it, it, winning the Oscar was the worst fate for this movie because mm. it immediately sort of sullied its reputation. It stopped being cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, and and I think that sort of has harmed it. But, you know, I, I feel like if it had not won the Oscar or if it had not even been nominated for the Oscar, this would be a beloved cult object. Because just the craziness of it being this quasi fake Bollywood movie about 
uh, India and just this weird fate romance storyline, all of that, like it feels like a crazy passion project uh, and just it, it happened to hit. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, that's a good point. I think I would I think train spotting would be less appreciated if it had won an Oscar. Oh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but that thing was never winning an Oscar. No, not at that time. In in the nineties during the during the Dare era, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, any last thoughts on Slumdog Millionaire before we head on to our third and final section? Um, you know what? I was gonna make a I was gonna make a question, but I didn't think about it again until the last second, so I got nothing. Will Shadow well. make a good joke? A yes, B no, C. We already did the 50-50, so it's just yes or no. Yeah, I was going to say uh, yeah, kind of an eight ball uh, 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 reply, oh. Hazy, ask again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, on to part three. And we're back for our third and final section where we're talking about all the other physical media stuff we've watched in the past week and deciding what we're going to cover next week. So just one thing, uh, we, we got together on Saturday. We didn't watch anything new, but we watched, we rewatched Safety Last for its 100th anniversary, which was pretty fun. I can say with complete certainty that I have never watched a movie on its 100th anniversary before. Never yeah. happened. It was kind of cool. That was fun. Mm-hmm. It's still loving just as much as I did back oh. then holds up <laughs> <laughs> so good and... uh, previously covered of course yes yes check it out yeah so we have uh relatively few picks than usual this week we've got nine selections i've been doing a lot of re-watching so i watched like i i re-watched like four things we've already covered in the past oh. week so there's <laughs> there's fewer choices because in in addition to that we re-watched snake eyes uh, and uh, I, I also watched New Nightmare at some point. We'll talk about that. So uh, first up is From Russia with Love. As I was talking about during Ipcress File. Now this one I don't think I've seen. This one's interesting. It's uh, often Bond fans tend to cite this one as a favorite because it's the most basic uh, bare bones, uh, down to earth version of Bond. Like I was saying in the Ipcress one, it's it's sort of the most comparable one where it, it is Bond having a fairly straightforward thing. You know, he doesn't have any ridiculous gadgets. He's got a suitcase with hidden knives in it. You know, it's it's very realistic. <laughs> that sounds like a thing that uh, that a person might have. I don't. Yeah. I don't think they needed to call Hugh in for that. Right. And uh, the the whole plot with it is Sprechta, uh, the special executive for counterintelligence revenge, inspect, uh, counterintelligence, torture, revenge and espionage. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're mad at him for having killed Dr. No in the previous film. So they're. Please. Does Donald Pleasant show up? Not yet. We do oh. have a Blofeld, but it's just hands petting a cat and oh, okay. being threatening to people. <laughs> so it is our first Blofeld, and we do kind of get a suggestion of him, but it's going to be a while before we see his face. For a few movies, he's just invisible hands, and he's kind of Dr. Claw, basically. 
Oh, and then and then they ruined Dr. Claw by making an action figure that had his face and body. And, and it was so crappy looking. It was too. so wrong. He looked like nothing, Gargamel. He looked like Gargamel. <laughs> but you know what, though? Smurf. Nothing that they would have made no. would have measured up. He could no. not like he could look like Spawn and it wouldn't. Well, I mean, no, it wouldn't work. But you know what I mean? Right. I mean, I think the thing was he should have had a mask on instead of just having an old guy face. But yeah, that movie is dreadful. The, the Inspector Gadget live action movie. Oh, just <laughs> terribly bad. Uh, oh. Oh, I never saw it, but I could only imagine that it looks bad. <laughs> So, yeah, from, from Rush With Love, uh, Spectre, they've sent, uh, they, this is, you know, we've got our first evil lesbian in the Bond series. That's something that comes up a lot in Ian Fleming. He had some weird issues with lesbians. We've got oh, Rosa dear. Klebb, who now works for Spectre, but is believed to still work for Russian intelligence. So she's, uh, there's this young lady who she's grooming and who she gets to uh, do this plot where she's, she says she's fallen in love with Bond and they're going to uh, offer one of the KGB's, you know, code machines uh, to defect uh, and she's going to get it on with Bond. And like, we're, we're going to get take a train out of out of uh, Turkey together. All right. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, the you know, she fell in. She she so has this story of she fell in love with Bond's picture. Mm, right. Yeah. I think we were right. talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thread is you've got Spectre's hitman, who's like Spectre's version of Bond. He is, uh, and I think he was an IRA guy. He's an Irish national, played by uh, Robert Shaw, Quint from Jaws. Oh, okay. He's he's the villainous version of Bond, who's uh, out to take him out, which is kind of cool. Uh, how many movies do we have villainous versions of Bond in? Goldeneye has one. Oh, GoldenEye has one with Sean Bean, mm-hmm. the great. So th- this one, the, you know, he he goes to Istanbul where he meets probably my absolute favorite secondary Bond character. Like there's this guy who uh, works in Istanbul who's like the, the bureau chief there. And he's just so much fun. I really love this guy's energy. He's hilarious. All right. Uh, and he he's running the the station there and he gets to know him uh there's another guy who's on the level with Rosa Club uh who he's like a chess master who's also it's it's his plan overall like he's the guy running the main thing and then there's all the further parts anyway this guy uh he's i, I can't remember exactly it's Vladik Scheibel or something he's Mr. Boogalow in the Apple oh man i love Mr. Boogalow I, I went for Halloween as Mr. Boogalow one time. <laughs> so, oh, nice. so, so I was like, oh, my God, it's him when he was way younger in the 60s. That's crazy. He's cool. one of the villains. So, yeah, you know, just uh, this whole espionage plot. They know it's a trap. They go in sending Bond knowing he's going into a trap and he knows it. But it's like, yeah, we'll we'll figure a way out of it. And, you know, it's Bond. So he does. And uh, the the whole plot is, of course, they're trying to. Uh, get them together. They film them having sex in a bridal suite, and they're going to discredit him with the film <laughs> before they kill him. James Bond has sex? I can't believe it. it it's it's almost as if it's his primary characteristic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, we've got Satan Was a Lady. 
the final uh, Doris Wishman that I have. Oh. Uh, I don't know how much of this movie she did, because my understanding is she didn't shoot any sex scenes. She never did any of the hardcore scenes. She literally just left set when they were doing that stuff. Uh, okay. So... There's not a lot of movie other than that. So <laughs> I feel like she was not, uh, she, she may not really deserve that director credit so much on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, like there, there are interstitial scenes, but there's not much of it. It's a very thin plot. There's the, this, I, I mean, it's the Prince and nature go plot that I told you about. Uh, there's two sisters. They're both in love with the same guy. One of the sisters is a wallflower and one of them's really wild. The wild sister is, teamed up with the fiance to gaslight the sister that's supposed to be marrying him. And they're all, they're trying to drive her crazy. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that makes about as much sense as anything. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know. Cause it's mostly just endless sex scenes and nothing else. And they're totally anonymous cause they're not shot by Doris. So they don't have that energy. They do have some <laughs> cutaways to silly shit once in a while though, but it's not enough. <laughs> no, it's gotta be all the time. There should be more of it. Next, we've got Men in Black International. There was another one? I mean, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a movie that kind of almost... Yeah, uh, it's... I mean, AI hadn't come very far by then, so it's it, you, you really show the roots of it not being uh, completely fully written. <laughs> it, it feels like it was written by a robot. It, it's just... It's it, I like I don't even know what to say about it. There's nothing to it. It's so forgettable. <laughs> uh, it's it's got Chris Hemsworth and uh, Tessa Thompson. Okay. Who I like I like them. I like them both. Uh, for some reason, it's an action movie. There aren't really jokes, which is weird because I Men in Black is kind of a comedy series. Yeah, necessarily. Um, there's. There's some world-ending alien plot, and they do a bunch of action hero stuff, and it's like, what is this? Is... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It feels yeah. auto-generated. I, I don't the... know what to make of it. It's so boring. <laughs> yeah, no, the point is supposed to be that there's always a world-ending uh, alien plot. Yeah, and that, that's they're, like... they're kind of not... they're chill about it. It's like, well, this is our job. <laughs> okay, well, if, if they're chill about it... Then no, I they're not it's... in this. That, oh. That's normally what it is. That's that's how it works. That's the fun of it. Yeah, no, they have to be chill about it. If they're So these guys are like, oh my god, a world-ending alien plot? Sort of. I mean, it's it's more of a Harry Potter thing because Tessa Thompson is the new recruit because like when she was a kid... She saw aliens and her parents got neuralized, but she didn't because mm. she was in the background while they were doing it. Okay. So she's just been spending her whole life looking for the organization because she wants to be a men in black. And then All she right. finds them and then she becomes one. And then it's her learning about the men in black. And, you know, she's, you know, going to Hogwarts. It's, I don't know. It kind of sucks. <laughs> no, you know, it really sucks. It was a piece <laughs> of shit. I hated it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next, we've got No, the case is happily resolved. So this title makes me think of the Batman slapping Robin meme. Where yeah. Robin is saying the case and Batman slaps. He's like, no, the case is happily resolved. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, the last one in that Years of Lead box. Oh, OK, cool. So it is uh, Polizia Teschi, and it is about this guy. He's out fishing, 
and he hears this lady screaming for help. And he does, you know, to his credit, he actually does run to go see what's going on. But by, by the time he's got there, the lady has been brutally beaten to death by this guy who's having just a whole fucking crazy psychotic fit. Okay. So the guy sees him. He sees the guy. And the guy chases him. And he gets to his car. And the guy chases him in a car. And by the time he gets away, he's so frightened of the guy that he decides not to report the case. Right. He doesn't okay. re- report anything. He's not going to step forward as a witness. He's like, ah, I, I don't want to get involved because that guy might show up and kill me. Mm-hmm. So the killer, instead, he goes immediately to the police and he reports the witness as the killer. Oh. <laughs> and I so, see. you know, uh, lots of people saw him running away from the crime scene and the police start to suspect it. Like they don't necessarily find him right away, but he starts to worry that the police are going to catch him. And he starts to worry how suspicious it is that he didn't go to the police in the first place. (laughs) So he keeps making more and more stupid decisions where like he paints his car a different color. He changes (laughs) his haircut and his mustache, you know, to change his identity. And yeah, uh, by the time he actually talks to the police, they're not so willing to believe his story. <laughs> <laughs> because he looks like the the guy he looks like the guy that you would draw on a wanted poster to divert attention away from yourself. <laughs> well, it's just he he keeps uh like he he has been deliberately evading the police all this time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh Making some stupid decisions. It's a play stupid games, win stupid prizes kind of movie. All right. Next up, we've got one that I know you've seen, Sleepaway Camp. Have I? Haven't you? I don't Sleepaway know. Sleepaway Camp. Legendary slasher, one of like the all-time camp slasher movies. I don't think I have. I think oh, it's I... on my list of stuff I gotta see. I could have sworn we watched it one time at like a uh, movie night. This one's we very famous have, one. But I was really drunk for a lot of those. Fair enough. But I still drank. Huh, I, I could have sworn you'd seen this one. So it's uh, th- this one I think of as the grimiest and best of the summer camp slashers where it's actually summer camp. Like it is the full length of summer camp. Uh, it's got every age group. Mostly it is like young teens, tweens. Uh, that's sort of all our main characters. That's who our slasher is. That's who most of the victims are. It's uh, kind of pretty intense in that regard. Okay. Uh, and so it's got a very weird setup where you have Ricky and Angela. So uh, Ricky has been to the camp before. Angela is his cousin who is the survivor of a boat accident that killed uh, the the dad and their sibling. Right. Uh, which we see at the start of the movie. They're out boating and then they fall and then a like a speedboat hits them. Oof. Uh, so, you know, wild start to the movie. So this is Angela finally getting over the accident, going out to do something, going to summer camp with Ricky, and then people around them start dying. And it all happens to be people who have been messing with Angela. So is it Angela doing it? Is it Ricky? Is it someone else? Uh-oh. Or is it nobody in the main cast and we never find out who, like, in Black Christmas? Uh, so this one, it, it is uh, definitely one of the main characters. It's This is, like, one of the most legendary reveals at the end. It's it's quite famous slash infamous. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I've seen this one. Though. Oh, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I, I thought we'd talked about this one a time or two before, but yeah, no, it's a, uh, I mean, it's, it's a great one. It's pretty crazy. Very full tilt nuts kind of movie. There's one, the, the cook at the camp is just like an outward pedophile and he gets just the craziest, most hilariously brutal death. <laughs> he's uh cooking a huge pot of soup and he's on like a rickety chair up on this like giant vat of soup oh and yeah so he pulls the chair out from under him and so like he has to grab this huge iron pot with his hands which is scalding oh. and then you know as it, they slowly pull out the chair and he loses balance and then the whole thing tips over on him and it's just Tons of boiling soup on him, so just you see him with skin just falling off. Outstanding uh, effects when when you nice. get those. Nice. No, things. I am sure I haven't seen this then. Oh wow. Okay. All right. Next up is Final Exam. This is one of those early, you know, primary first wave slashers that I'd never seen before. Okay. It's a uh, very basic. Pass the test. God <laughs> help the rest. Yeah, it's basic. Like it is. It's it's Halloween, except it's at college. Okay. Like, pretty much one-to-one. Like You, you have oh. uh, a really straight one-to-one, except, like, you're, you have your final girl, and you have a, a guy who knows a lot about true crime and stuff and is sort of self-aware. So, like, an early version of that, where it's he's not aware of the movies, but he's really aware of true crime and how this kind of stuff can happen. Okay. Uh, but I mean, the killer is straight up Michael Myers. Basically, he—I I don't think he has a character name. He's just a dude in overalls with a big butcher knife. <laughs> He's got a Myersy silhouette. Yeah, and they're clearly doing that. It's a sound-alike score. It, like, just—it's very much a Halloween clone, right down to the ground. <laughs> All right. Well, nice not bad. To be good. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, but you know, I—I I had fun, but it's just not unique in any real way other than uh having that one character who's a little bit more self-aware okay uh next i watch new nightmare obviously not on the list because we've already covered it that's a fun movie oh yeah <laughs> interesting meta shit. yeah th- and this is just like the most meta shit in the world to a point that it's almost detrimental to the movie because there's so many people in it who are non-actors <laughs> because they're just part of the crew <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the acting, like Bob Shea uh, is not meant to be in a Hollywood film. He's meant to be (laughs) behind the lens in a Hollywood film. Yeah. (laughs) Next, we've got Body Parts. This is a pretty fun one. It's (laughs) So, you know, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where Homer gets a hair transplant from Snake and it's evil. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that one a lot, but I've seen it a couple times. Yeah, it's kind of that plot, but it's doing that plot to the absolute max. So it's like, (laughs) you got this guy, he's in an absolutely insane car accident at the start of the movie. It's very, (laughs) totally ludicrous and intense. Like, he's following someone, and the, the tire falls off their vehicle, and he manages to only get a minor fender bender, but then from behind both of them, a semi hits his car and uh, he's just rocketed through the windshield and bounces off the wrecked other car and onto the concrete. 
Okay. Which you would think would completely destroy him, but he just loses an arm. Oh, wow. That's very, that's very lucky. Yeah. And he's a criminal psychologist. He works with serial killers and stuff. So he's uh, really in the world with all of it. And while he's undergoing the arm transplant surgery, which, I don't know, not usually a thing. Anyway, he yeah, sees... Yeah, no. <laughs> can we even do that with today's technology? I feel like we can't. You can. It is doable. Um, it's just not common because then I mean, you don't really get, you know arm donors and all that commonly you don't get people who you oh yeah you can sew saw up my whole body and use all the bits you know they're not usually going to just bury a head and torso uh so he gets the transplant uh or while he's he's he comes awake for a brief moment during the procedure and he sees like this guy getting his head buzz sawed off first okay like the the, the donor his head is sawed off first oh. anyway yeah. the 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 arm's evil you know, it's an evil arm. It's making an him evil arm. Yeah, it's it's controlling him to do evil things. It makes him hit his kid. It makes him just be a total asshole. And then he starts to look into it. And he realizes like, oh, shit, there's like two other people who got body parts. One of them's Brad Dourif. I sent you a sequence of Brad Dourif in this movie. Uh <laughs> Brad Dourif got the other arm and he's become a hit painter because he's painting all these terrifying serial killer images that are a big hit. Nice. And then the guy who got the legs is uh, becoming a basketball star. He's just got like super legs. (laughs) (laughs) And all of that's pretty fun. But then it's the final act where it just completely goes insane, where uh, someone just starts coming back for the parts. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the parts are getting stolen back <laughs> oh it's 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 a really good time <laughs> it's, it's very silly but it's fun time uh next up uh fear <laughs> uh, i talked about this one a bit when we cut we talked about freeway oh this is another reese witherspoon movie came out the same year as freeway okay uh, again her playing a 16 year old but uh this time it's like it's it's a very basic concept of you know she's the rich girl from like the sheltered background who meets the tough towny guy who's got a dangerous streak in him but it's mark Wahlberg and he is a complete psychopath (laughs) it's like it, it turns out like not only is he sort of a bad boy he's part of a whole criminal enterprise and he is completely psychotic and it's it first appears when like she is hugging just a a male friend of hers outside school at the end of the day and he just Uh kicks the shit out of him and goes totally psychotic and she dumps him but then she has a fight with her dad uh william peterson from csi you know the the original gil grissom the main csi guy yeah yeah it's him he's the dad and he gets in a fight with her about having lost her virginity when she has kind of already dumped this guy. And just to kind of like fight with her dad and be a teen about it, that she kind of maybe starts to consider getting back with him again. And she ultimately does and then immediately regrets it again when she learns just how much of a psycho he is. But then it's too late. And then he, you know, the last act is uh, him and his gang laying siege to their house. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) It it goes really mental. Uh, It gets very amplified, (laughs) like very absurdist by the end, but, you know, fun. 
I, I like it. It's, it is a good time, but it is real trashy. <laughs> it's what, like I brought it up in uh, Freeway because most memorably, the thing that was really stuck in my mind, and I think I had misremembered it, is taking place on a Ferris wheel, but uh, where they go on their first date and Marky Mark uh, finger bangs her on the roller coaster. <laughs> what? How? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're in seats next to each other. <laughs> yeah, but no, but how? Like that's so. Cause, ah. I mean, yeah, no, I know. Uh, famous scene. Uh, it's it, on the IMDb page. The image of her face is the first picture. <laughs> <laughs> and last up is Invitation to Hell, which is the most well known of the Michael J. Murphy movies. Okay. So this one, uh, I, I talked a bit about this last week. This guy. Or, sorry, this lady, she is invited to a party in a secluded country house. She gets there. She doesn't know it's a costume party. Turns out it's a costume party. There's a guy dressed like the Incredible Hulk outside. It's like, ah, oh, shit. But they they dress her up as the Bride of Frankenstein. They're having a good time. And then uh, they drug her. And then she's maybe going to be sacrificed to Satan. And then like, she wakes up the next morning with claw marks on her. And is like, I'm not cool with this, guys. <laughs> But they won't let her leave, and Satan controls the whole place, and it sort of turns into a slasher where you get some just really gnarly kills every time someone tries to leave the place. Guy gets a knife through the neck. Uh, there's uh, a, you know, a few things like that. Ultimately, you, you one of the greatest bits is a guy gets crucified on a wall of, full of pornography, and then Satan pulls his heart out of his chest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and like really lo-fi 16 millimeter has a tremendous score just experimental burbling synthesizer clearly just played live the whole movie like while they were watching it <laughs> cool shit uh i i really enjoyed it but yeah the acting is clearly at a homemade 16 millimeter level <laughs> it's very blank but it's interesting, like, I, this one it was a really good time, and I'm definitely getting a feel for the Michael J. Murphy thing now. Okay, cool. So how many more of the, how many more is in the Michael J. Murphy collection? Quite a few. Okay. <laughs> uh, and how many have been, sorry. There's, like, we've only, I've only seen, this is the third one that's complete. Right, because so, a bunch of them were just lost to time. Right. So the prior to this, there was like four of them that are that were incomplete films. And then the rest of them in the set are the complete ones. This is a 10 disc set. I'm on disc two. Oh, OK. Oh, wow. So <laughs> we've got a ways to go. So it's not like Michael J. Murphy's going to be taken off the board anytime soon. No. All right. Um, OK, because I'm entertaining the thought of of doing that but i see also it's a 44 minute movie <laughs> it's it's quite short there admittedly there would not be a ton to talk about i mean you could check out the other ones on the okay. same disc perchance if you wanted to they're they're not as good i i mean i enjoyed death in the family we talked a bit about that last week that's the one where it's a family reunion where they just keep killing until there's nobody left that one was fun <laughs> but this one is uh, definitely superior okay um, this is the other question I have. How does Know the Case is Happily Resolved compared to uh, compared to Highway Racer or Colt 38 Special Squad? 
Uh, pretty good. It's a different sort of tone because, again, it's much less of an action one and more of a psychological one because it's this idiot who keeps digging himself further and further into the hole <laughs> and just not really dealing with the case. And he like he goes to the killer to talk to him about it first before talking to the police about it. And <laughs> he, he just keeps making the dumbest decisions in the world until it just all snowballs on him, obviously. Okay. I mean, it's 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 good, but it definitely doesn't have quite the energy of those other two. Okay, okay. Uh, all right, I've narrowed it down, but I've narrowed it down to four. We're going to do something a little different in the spirit of we just watched a thing based on a game show for the million dollars. What is Shanna going to pick for the movie? Will it be From Russia With Love, Sleepaway Camp? Uh, fear or body parts? Hmm. I don't know. What, what, I don't, do you I, don't I haven't decided. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So which man, questions? I think I'd like all of them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Phone a friend. Uh, what? What? Uh, what uh, questions uh, on any of them? Yeah. Okay. So body parts is how. <laughs> Um, I guess how ridiculous or hmm, I don't even know what I want to ask. I'm sorry. So how like body crazy parts, is it? Body parts does get like elevated fucking crazy by the end. The last act is really bonkers. Uh, <laughs> it, it has a number of increasingly unlikely twists. Uh, <laughs> I mean, starting with him opening the door to find out that the guy, the basketball guy is just like on a bed with his legs removed, just ripped off and like, Oh <laughs> shit, it's got real. And like, you have a sequence where, uh, he's handcuffed with, you know, the evil arm, uh, to someone in another car, like two cop cars, like he's in one cop car and the guy's <laughs> handcuffed him and is driving another cop car. And there he's like trying to rip his arm off. Cause he's trying to take it. Like it oh, gets pretty intense. <laughs> is this the one where you linked me a video where the like they're like grabbing back and forth and the dude's arm just falls <laughs> off? Yeah, that's the Durif death in that one. Oh, all right, let's do that. Let's do body parts. I wasn't <laughs> gonna pick that. I was gonna pick Sleepaway Camp actually, but let's do silly body parts coming off. All right, body parts is quite a bit of fun, and uh, we only have a handful of additions this week. Okay. Uh, four altogether, including Funeral in Berlin, which we didn't really give much of a description of earlier. So first is Apocalypse After. This is uh, just a short film, and it's it's sort of standing for the rest. It's a collection of Bertrand Mandico's short films. Okay. So this is a guy who did After Blue and Wild Boys. Oh, okay, okay, cool. So it's just a like it's three hours, but it is all of his short films in one collection. Okay. So like collectively, they come to about three hours of stuff. So I figured you would just kind of do it all as one. Uh, would sort of make the most sense because they're all shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, that's an interesting idea. Next, Convoy Busters, which is another of uh, one of the collaborations between director Stelvio Massi and uh, actor. Uh, Maurizio Merli of Highway Racer. Oh, okay. This is another Poliziotesky. It's uh, one of the, like, the two of them did, like, six movies together. I think we were talking about it when we did the episode. So this is one of those. It's uh, Maurizio Merli. Again, he's a rogue cop. 
plays by his own rules. <laughs> does he does he get it right at least this time? I my my understanding is initially he finds there there's a thing where like a teenager, like a teenage girl has been professionally murdered, like her throat slashed by a pro and he sort of follows the thread all the way up to like important public leaders. So they just kind of transfer him to another town. And then in the other town, he busts a bunch of uh, smugglers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess. Sure. Uh, next is Michael J. Murphy's The Last Night, which is another slasher movie of his. It's a slasher on the loose during the final performance of like a small local theater troupe. Like okay. uh, the the last night of uh, their production. All right. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And Last Funeral in Berlin, uh, which has Harry Palmer sent to Berlin uh, for basically the From Russia with Love plot. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's a Soviet who wants to defect, but he's a little bit uncertain and it kind of sounds like it might be a trap and he wants Harry Palmer to help smuggle him out. Right, but it could it could be a trap. It could get, be getting mind wiped again. It could be, uh, and this one is directed by Guy Hamilton, who did a bunch of the Bond movies. Oh, interesting. It's kind of interesting. I mean, both of them, like they're all shot at Pinewood Studios. They have the same set designer. It kind of tracks that they'd have a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. So, cool. what do you figure for our main feature this week? Um. Well. I'm thinking it's I'm thinking it's about time to take another one that's been near the top for sitting near the top for quite a while. And I can't remember who we covered who also did this, but somebody we covered who did something I liked also did or was involved with battles with without honor and humanity. Uh, I don't think we've covered any of the Fukusaku stuff, uh, but Kinji Fukusaku, uh, he directed a couple of the other ones in the, uh, like he, he did Fall of Akko Castle, I think. The the last two in the Sunny Chiba set were him. That's what it was. But I think he we was... covered the one before that. Samurai Reincarnation was him. Oh, okay. So yeah, no, we, we won't. We won't have covered any of his. I don't. Yeah, no. So Fall of Echo Castle and that one were two. Uh, did you ever see Battle Royale? Oh, I loved Battle Royale. That was his final film. Oh, okay. So this is the Battle Royale guy. Yeah. Oh, hell. Um, let, let's do it. So Battles Without Honor and Humanity is basically his other best known picture other than Battle Royale. Uh, kind of has the same stature as the Godfather does in Japan. Oh, oh, interesting. This is the first in the Yakuza papers, which is, uh, I think there's maybe eight movies in this series. And okay. they're all directed by Fukusaku. It's this huge, sweeping, post-war Japan rise of the Yakuza tale. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I have seen this first one before. I haven't really delved too deep into the rest of the series, but it will be fun to dig into them. Right on. So, uh, so yeah, next week we got Battles Without Honor and Humanity, uh, plus Body Parts. <laughs> <laughs> Should be think, a good time, please. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it. 
Mm-hmm. So, do you have any last thoughts before we close for this week? For the million dollars, do I have any last thoughts? No. No, I think I'm just going to walk away on this one. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks so much. And I fly like paper, get high like planes. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. <laughs> <laughs>